0: Hi, friends. Welcome back to Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson. Uh, if you hear any squeaking in the background of this week's lesson, uh, don't adjust your audio. Just realize that our dog just had puppies, six of them, and they are one thin wall away. So any squeaking in the background, realize that's just the miracle of life. Enjoy it. Uh, but let's get past the background and into the foreground where we'll have the miracle of truth. The scriptures that we'll be studying this week are, are amazing. We are actually in our last section of Old Testament study. You've made it. Uh, congratulations. You've endured it well. We've made it through the historical books. We've made it through the wisdom literature. We've made it through the major prophets. And all we have left is this last section, uh, 12 smaller books. The, in the Hebrew Bible, the Jews call it the book of the 12. Uh, collect them all and put them together into one scroll. Uh, that's a little bit longer rather than 12 really, really small ones. Uh, for Christians, we typically refer to them as the Minor Prophets. They'll never call them that to their face. Okay, uh, they are minor only in terms of of length, and what they make up, what they lack in quantity, they more than make up for in quality. These are incredible books, and historically, what makes them tricky is that we're kind of jumping all over back. This is a flashback moment. We've already gone through the history. And if you need a refresher course, you might need to go back and re-watch the video at the end of Second Kings. Because most of the, the minor, so-called minor prophets that we'll be studying for the next six weeks, at about a, a two prophet per week clip. Now, most of them are clustered around two incredibly important time periods. Uh, the first one is the destruction, of the, or the, yeah, the destruction of the northern kingdom, Israel, uh, by the Assyrians, and the scattering of the ten tribes. That happened about 722, 721 BC. And then a little over a century later, in around 600 BC, is when you see the destruction of the southern kingdom by the Babylonians. The Babylonian exile, the captivity there, 70 years. This is the stuff that we've been doing lately in uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. But these, these shorter books, these quote-unquote minor prophets, they're going to be mad at me. I keep calling them that. Uh, they, for the most part, lived in one, or, one of those two time periods. In fact, just recently in family scripture study, my, my teenage son, We were talking about the fact that Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Daniel and Lehi all lived at the same time. And he looked at me like, wait, wait, there's only supposed to be one prophet at a time, isn't there? And I just smiled and I said, well, we have 15 prophets, seers and revelators right now. But I understood where he was coming from. The assumption is usually like there's a Joseph Smith and then a Brigham Young and then a John Taylor and then a Wilford Woodruff. And that there's an Elijah and then an Elisha. And it's like one lone runner in the wilderness that hands on the baton to his successor. And it's just one at a time. Well, that's not the case. Typically through the Old Testament, it's been one named prophet. And then a bunch of other prophets that we don't get names of. Or were, or, or people that maybe just pop onto the scene for, for a moment or two. But there are typically... In fact, I'll say this. At times like these... The destruction of the northern kingdom, the destruction of the southern kingdom, at times of major political and social and economic unrest, times of religious apostasy, end times when the, when destruction is on its way. That's typically when God stacks the deck and, and floods the earth with as many witnesses as He can. By the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established? Well these were times where, God's word needed to be established in the minds and hearts of his hearers. Either to help them change, as was the case when Isaiah was telling Hezekiah to, to, to trust God and all would be well. Uh, or meanwhile, same time period, up north, you get a, that, I, Isaiah was down south in Judah. Same time period, you get a Hosea up north, teaching similar principles and crying repentance with just, much fer, uh, just as much fervor. But the people just wouldn't listen. So again, whether God is stacking the deck in Israel's favor, trying to help them change, or to simply pass a righteous judgment because he gave them every opportunity to change and they wouldn't take it, these are the times that they are living in. And these are the times that we are living in. Uh, A scattering of Israel spiritually. We're seeing it all around us as people struggle in the faith. Uh, And to think of Babylonian captivity. Here we are being... Forced to live within the great and spacious building. Enemy territory, like we talked about last week in Daniel. So I hope that we'll see some incredible relevance as we go through these, the, the book of the 12. As we spend our last six weeks in these incredible books of scripture. For today, this week, we'll be studying Hosea and Joel. And Hosea, how? How? when people complain that the old testament is too that the god of the old testament is angry and mean and, ju- and judgmental and, and, and you know venge- vengeful you can respond to that with one word and that word is hosea i mean you don't hey, he's not alone in this I, if we've paid attention at all this year we have seen mercy permeate the pages of the old testament but if you had to pick just a single example it's tough to beat hosea if you if you remember, he looks so again. Let's put it in context. He is a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel, right before the destruction of that kingdom by the Assyrians. Israel's about the ten tribes are about to get lost. They're about to be scattered. Meanwhile, Isaiah is teaching down in the southern kingdom of Judah. Amos is down there as well. Uh, these are heady times. Lots of turmoil and unrest. And like Jeremiah was. Well, remember a couple two weeks ago, Ezekiel was the king of of strange object lessons. Uh, the week before that, Jeremiah had some amazing visual aids. The month before that, Isaiah painting these incredibly eloquent pictures of, of imagery and symbolism. Well, in some ways all of that was leading up to what we'll see today where Hosea it's more than a momentary object lesson. It's more than Verbal eloquence, it is I need you to act something out That will go a lot longer and a lot deeper Than Ezekiel shaving his head Okay, Uh, it will break your heart In far more Poignant and personal ways than Than Jeremiah breaking the pot The, The imagery that Isaiah used about about being married, Israel and Jehovah as wife and husband, I'm going to need you to act this out. When God had said to Isaiah that you and your family will be signs to me, or not to me, from me, to the people of of, of Judah, uh, the names that you'll give your children will be incredibly symbolic. Well, the same would be true of Hosea, but it's so personal because of what he's asked to do. But in many ways, Hosea, this is what you signed up for. When you accepted the call to, to represent me. Because Hosea does represent the Lord in this book, in this story. The, his name, Hosea, could also be pronounced Hosea, which is the same root as Yeshua, which means salvation. So here is salvation personified, and he is extending salvation to anyone who is willing to listen. He's willing to marry himself to someone in desperate need of salvation. That's what we'll see in the first three chapters. But it's the same root as names like Elisha or Isaiah or Hosanna or Joshua or Jesus. This is Hosea. This is Hosea. This is salvation among us. And, and again, what he'll be living out is the embodiment of how God feels about his people Israel. It's an incredible book, so uh, prepare yourself for it. We typically, if you know anything about Hosea, then you know the rough outlines of the first three chapters. There's a lot more chapters than three. Uh, and so the second part of Hosea it might be more uh, news-breaking in terms of his, the autobiographical portion is over, and he is preaching and, and crying repentance and prophesying, Uh, like other prophets do. But let's begin with this incredibly emotional autobiographical beginning. Hosea chapter 1, verse 1, sets the historical context. The word of the Lord that came unto Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, that's again during Isaiah's ministry in the south, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. And that's where Hosea is spending his time, up north. In verse 2, the beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea. So this is the start. How's this for a mission call? The Lord said to Hosea, go, take unto thee a wife. Hmm, So far, so good. Uh, This is arranged marriages uh, and an arranged marriage, which was the norm back in that time period. And God is, is commanding Hosea to take a wife. Wonderful. But let's be more specific. Go, take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms. And why on earth would he ask a prophet, a holy man, to take an unholy wife? Because it's the visual aid. It's the object lesson. For the land hath committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. If you remember Isaiah's metaphors, about the husband and wife and who hath uh, begotten me these as all of these scattered children return or show me the bill of your mother's divorcement. I didn't sign it. I haven't served papers. We're still together on this. If she'll just come back. We saw Jeremiah use similar imagery with the two sisters, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and one is a prostitute and the other is a backslider. Either way, they're both uh, unfaithful to their covenant spouse. That covenant infidelity that spiritual adultery that Israel and Judah were so guilty of, that is what so many of these prophets are describing. Ezekiel did the same thing when he talks about the, the, the little baby, the infant child that was discovered abandoned. No one even there to cut the umbilical cord, which, how does that even work? Uh, but that as a father figure, God is willing to raise her. And then as a husband figure, to marry her. Again, those are powerful metaphors. But for Hosea, it's not a metaphor. It's life. Nothing else has worked thus far. And so for you to act it out, as people will look at you and scratch their heads and wonder, or will think less of, wait, what, what are you doing? For you to marry... I mean, the, the, the phrase, a wife of whoredoms, other trans, uh, translations simply call her a promiscuous woman. And what exactly does that mean? Is she a prostitute? Was she at some point? We don't know the the gory details. But to know that what probably everyone else in town knows, that this woman is unfaithful. And as a result, she is unclean. To have the gut punch that Hosea has two verses in to his book, Think about, for example, Ezekiel, when he was so disgusted when God gave him the recipe for Ezekiel bread and told him to cook it on a fire made of human dung. That is just like, that is so disgusting. That is unclean. I can't do that. Think about Peter when he has the vision before he meets Cornelius as these unclean, unkosher animals are lowered before him and, and, and he's told to eat, partake, and he's like, that. That goes against everything I've ever been raised with. I've never eaten unclean food. That, it's revolting. Think about Joseph, as in Joseph and Mary, when he realizes that she is pregnant outside of their wedlock and being a just man. I can't marry her. But being a merciful one, he's minded to put her away privily. I can't do it. She's unclean. To think about Jesus with a woman taken in adultery I'm not going to condemn you because you haven't had time to repent, but I cannot condone what you've done. So please go and sin no more because right now you're unclean. To think about what Hosea, salvation himself, is feeling when he's given this command, I have to take an unclean, impure, unworthy companion. Because that's exactly what God has done. The Lord, in marrying himself, sealing himself, covenant companions with the house of Israel, when they are unfaithful to him, talk, again, talk about a visual aid. Now in verse 3, we meet her a little more closely. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, which conceived and bare him a son. When I taught seminary, I always joke about this verse. I said, if you think it's bad enough that you have to marry an unfaithful, promiscuous woman, I mean, her name is Gomer, for crying out loud. How do you whisper sweet nothings into that ear? Uh, No offense to any of you have the name Gomer. I just, I doubt that many of you do. Uh, What's interesting about her name, if Hosea is salvation, Gomer means completion. Well, what does that have to do with this? The verb Gomer means to complete or come to an end. Now, does it make a little more sense? Because the time period, the the northern kingdom has come to its end. It has reached a completion of iniquity. Uh, The the wrath of God has filled up and is beginning to overflow because their wickedness has become fully ripe. So yes, they are at the point of Gomer, of completion and the end of of this northern kingdom. Is it too late for them to change? Well, Gomer will help us decide what will they do as they reach this this point, as they approach this point of no return. Will they return as in repent? That's the message of Hosea. But what about this son? In verse 4 and 5, the Lord says to Hosea, Call his name Jezreel, for yet a little while, and I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu, and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. And it shall come to pass at that day, that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So there's some symb- symbolism behind this name as well. Remember in the previous verse when we meet Gomer, it says she conceived and bare Hosea a son. Well, yes, she would bear Hosea a son. Is it literally Hosea's son? It's actually hard to tell in that verse. It simply says that she conceived. Was, was she already pregnant with somebody else's son when Hosea married her? Was she unfaithful to Hosea in the moment? And, and there's, there's no paternity tests in this time period. Uh, I think most people will simply assume, yeah, that's, that's Hosea's boy. Uh, Hosea probably assumed it as well. It, but is it accurate? We don't know. Is, is she, has she changed? Was she promiscuous and now she's going to try to be faithful? Again, those are details that the, the book of Hosea just does not give us. But this first son that Hosea is going to raise will be named Jezreel. And Jezreel means God sows, as in God plants. And what you plant, what you you sow, you will sow also, You will you reap. This is the law of the harvest. And again, talk about a symbolic name. Jezreel was the valley uh, where Naboth had his vineyard and Jezebel and Ahab uh, set him up for just treachery to be able to take his vineyard. They, they had him slain so they could take it over. Uh, there's some, some negative seeds that were planted. That's what the kinds of things that were happening up north, around or before this time period. But it's, go, it's about time to pay the piper. And so what they have planted, as far as iniquity is concerned, as we're reaching the completion of that growth cycle, Gomer, then what has been planted, Jezreel, it's going to come back to haunt you. It's also a question as far as God is concerned. What has he been planting? And is there any hope that that those seeds of goodness and of mercy on his part will ever bear fruit? We're going to see. Now, if you go on, this is only the first of three children that we're going to meet from Hosea. And in every instance, when it speaks of their uh, of Gomer, conceiving child we're still left wondering is this literally Hosea's ch- child or someone else's the second one you meet uh, comes in verse 6 she conceived again and bare a daughter and God said unto him call her name Ruhama." now he's going to explain why in just a moment but let's pause on that name it consists of two parts lo simply means no or not and it is a strong not it's the kind of no you would say to a, to a, well, to my dog with its puppies when it's causing problems, okay? Uh, when, when you read the Ten Commandments, for example, uh, how do you fit all ten of those on tablets of stone? Well, you write small or you use very stark language. And in examples like, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not commit adultery, that's five words. In the Hebrew, it was two no adultery. In thou shalt not kill, that's four words, but in the Hebrew it was just two. No. Lo is the word. Lo kill. We don't kill. Uh, Thou shalt not steal, another four-word command. It was just two in the Hebrew also. Lo, and then the word for stealing. It's this is strong. And so Lo Ruhamah. None of that. Absolutely not. Okay, well, what's Ruhama? This is the hard part. Ruhama means mercy it means compassion it means it's everything that God is towards his people everything he has been through so many years of their apostasy and infidelity the word itself comes from a word that means womb or bowels that's how deep this is within God's guts this gut feeling this visceral emotion of love and mercy towards his people my bowels are filled with compassion towards you, Jesus says often. Uh, this, just, this yearning, this feeling towards them. And so the, the, the mercy, the compassion, even that beautiful verse back in Lamentations that speaks of it is because of God's mercies that we are not com- consumed, that his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. That's that same root word. Ruhama. so to have a daughter from a promiscuous wife and to name her no mercy do you see what, they're, what they've sown and what they're going to reap how can I be merciful to you if you will not repent what, what more could I have done for my vineyard as I'm sowing and planting and weeping watering those plants with my tears, digging and dunging and planting and pruning and everything I can think of, including centuries worth of mercy. But if we're at the point of no return, if we are coming to completion, Gomer, then what you have sown, Jezreel, will end up bringing no mercy, lo ruhamah, upon you. This family is one of the most powerful visual aids God could possibly give his people. And that's what he explains from the start. Call her name Loruhama. And you picture Hosea scratching his head. Are you kidding me? That is the worst baby name I've ever heard. No one would ever use that. Exactly. But the Lord explains, for I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel. I will utterly take them away. That is a complete scattering of Israel, the lost ten tribes. But then he adds this, but I will have mercy upon the house of Judah. So down south, it's not the end yet for them. I will save them by the Lord their God and will not save them by bow, nor by sword, nor by battle, nor by horses, nor by horsemen. That's the time of Isaiah and Hezekiah. When... This smack-talking Assyrian general is striking fear into the armies of, of Judah, and Hezekiah takes his letter and lays it out before the Lord in the temple. Remember this? Beautiful scene. And in answer to his prayer, Isaiah sends the message, God will preserve us. He will fight our battles. That's what you get with this, not by bow, not by sword, not by battle. The Assyrians won't even shoot a single arrow. And that's exactly what happened as Isaiah promised, and here, as Hosea prophesies. But that's the good news for the south. For the north, I don't have good news. And here's another reason why. Q child number three. Verse eight and nine. Now when she, Gomer, had weaned Loruhama, she conceived and bare a son. Again, is this Hosea's child? I don't know, but he's going to raise him. And God said, call his name Lo-Ami. Now, Lo, there's another one, a not. And what's Ami? Well, Am means people. And that I at the end, that suffix means mine. So Ami means my people. Lo-Ami means not my people. And that's exactly what God is getting at. Call his name Lo-Ami, for ye are not my people. And I will not be your God. This really does sound like the end of the relationship. Broken marriage vows, a promiscuous woman, a wife of whoredoms, children of whoredoms. How can I claim you if you will not claim me? To think about where they've finally arrived. The gomer, the completion of this infidelity. When Isaiah says down south, show me the bill of your mother's divorcement. There isn't one because they're still trying to claim God. But in the north, where's the bill? You just gave birth to him. And Lo Ami stands as painful witness of a severed relationship, a broken covenant. But even there, there's hope. There's always hope if we'll change. In verse 10 and 11, he says, Yet, so despite all of this, despite this family tree that, that, is, that is beginning to spread to help people understand what God is doing, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. Sound like the Abrahamic covenant? It's like the Lord is trying to remind them of when this marriage first began. The honeymoon stage was wonderful in the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that promise of seed, posterity, like the stars of heaven and the sands of the seashore, that's what Israel has become and can yet become, even after their scattered condition. He goes on, it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, ye are not my people, lo ami, there it shall be said unto them, ye are the sons of the living God. How's that for reversal? Then shall the children of Judah, southern kingdom, and the children of Israel, northern kingdom, be gathered together and appoint themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. This is the promise of reuniting. This is the promise of getting remarried or readopted or gathered home. If you remember in, an, in, uh, in Ezekiel, when we talked about the two sticks, And yes, it's Bible Book of Mormon, but yes, on a more immediate level, it's Northern Kingdom, Southern Kingdom. That those two will become one, once again, a reunited, single, unified kingdom of Israel. And that's the promise here as well. Because everything's going to be reversed as soon as you reverse course and return to me. That is the day of Jezreel. I love how he ends this. The whole whole family is being described here. And in the days of Jezreel, of God planting, God sowing. Because yes, you have sown the wind and will reap the whirlwind. You have sown wickedness and will, and will reap the consequences. But what has God been sowing? Seeds of faith. Planting promises. Remember that's how, how Malachi will teach it? At least how Moroni will quote it to the young Joseph Smith that Elijah will return to plant promises into the hearts of the fathers and the children, and they'll turn to one another. And those planted promises will bear fruit. God has sown it. He will reap it. That is the day of Jezreel. So hold out hope, Hosea. Things will be better. This is the allegory of the olive tree and everything the Lord of the vineyard is doing to make sure that there is ultimately good fruit. So better days ahead, Hosea. Unfortunately, there's just hard days in the meantime. As you turn to chapter 2, you'll see more of it. But here's the promise. Verse 1, Say ye unto your brethren, Ami, and to your sisters, Ruhama. Did you catch what he did? He just removed the low. From not my people to please be my people. What so we saw in the, at the end of the previous chapter—you can be sons and daughters of the living God. I'll claim you if you'll claim me, and call your sisters Ruhamah. Name them mercy. Call them compassion, because I have it for them. It's amazing how quickly identity can change if we'll just change our perspective, change our behavior, change our approach and come back to the living God. The, the, the Saul to Paul, the Jacob to Israel, the Abram to Abraham. Well, I don't know of a more dramatic name change by just dropping two little letters. Get rid of the low, and be my people, and receive my mercy. Verse 2, that's what he's asking for. That's what he's begging for. Plead with your mother. Plead. For she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. At least that's how she's acting. She's refusing to act like a faithful wife. She's not letting me be her true husband. So plead with her. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts. Beg mother to do that. Can you picture little Loruhamah and little Lo-Ami growing up and getting to a point where they're just pleading with their mother? Don't you see how much dad loves you? Why do you keep breaking his heart? Why do you keep breaking ours? This is the opposite of what Jacob is describing in Jacob chapter 2 and chapter 3 about unfaithful husbands that are breaking the hearts and wounding the tender consciences, the feelings of of their children. Plead with her. Another way to translate, by the way, instead of plead, it can be translated rebuke. Or bring charges. I think all of this is happening to bring charge. I mean, if it's the bring charges version, this is an accusation of infidelity. All the evidence is there. Uh, This is this is taking her to divorce court. But at the same time, as as justice is trying to help her come to her senses, mercy is there, pleading with her to change. In verse three, if she won't, this is the result. Lest I strip her naked and set her as in the day when she was born and make her as a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. This is the closest Hosea comes to that Ezekiel metaphor about God finding the abandoned infant Israel and trying to raise it into something something beautiful. In this case, to be stripped naked, we've just reversed well, we're back to the fall where God gives a coat of skins to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve. Well, if you won't accept that atonement covering, that holy garment, then you will be left fully exposed to, to the Alice and eye of God, to the demands of justice, to the consequences of your sins. You will be stripped naked. It will be like when you were back in the wilderness, back in the dry land, back when you were dying of thirst. Think about those 40 years of wilderness wanderings where Moses had to hit the rock for the water to come forth. Is that really what we have to do? Because if so, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it will remind you of your first love and our first days when I provided everything for you in the wilderness. When I carried you across the threshold, Jordan River, without your feet even having to get wet. Do we need to begin again? There's the promise. If not, verse 4 and 5, I will not have mercy upon her children. There's lo ruhamah. For they be the children of whoredoms. They're not my children, not my people. Lo Ami. For their mother hath played the harlot. She that conceived them hath done shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, my drink. Is that all you're thinking of? All the things you have, the temporal prosperity. And then worst of all, assume that it's come from your lover's? that it's the pagan pantheons all around you, the Canaanites when you're in Palestine, the, the Egyptian gods back when they were blessing you with all those cucumbers and leeks and onions. Oh, please, Israel. Recognize that every good gift that you have, all of that bread and water and wool and flax came from a husband that loves you came from a generous providence that wants to bless you, if only you'll let him. In verse 6 and 7, as he tries to guide her back, he says, Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns, and make a wall, that she shall not find her paths, you picture God trying to close off the other options? Trying to guide her in the right way? Almost by process of elimination. Like, no, a little hedge hedge there, some thorns here, a wall this way. Please just stay in the straight and narrow. I'm trying to establish the confines of covenant. And if you'll stay within them, all will be well. She shall follow after her lovers, he goes on, but she shall not overtake them. He's trying to slow down this downward descent. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. And then shall she say, so finally when all the other options have been eliminated, then she'll say, I will go and return to my first husband. For then was it better with me than now. That is such a powerful admission. Once you realize that there's no other hope and that the Lord has been your only hope all along, that the source of your blessings it's not what you think. It's not the wicked world that has been helping you. It's, it's been God all the way through. And so to get to a point, this is why I love the phrase rock bottom. I know we don't like it. When somebody hits rock bottom, that's bad news. But it's dawned on me repeatedly. That's the best place to be in those circumstances because you're finally back in contact with the rock that is beneath you and always has been burying you up from below. The Son of Man descended below all things. So he could do exactly that. And once you hit that point and think back to better days, you realize those better days were holier days. Were days when you were closer to God. When my wife hit that point as a young adult and realized that the the so-called happiness that the world was offering, that was fleeting foam on the top of the wave, that was a bubble that so quickly bursts, there was a hollowness and a shallowness to it that she recognized in the middle of it all and knew that there were better things from better sources. If you get to that point and you realize those days, days when I was close to God, are better than the days I'm in right now. This goes back to St. Augustine's great phrase that the heart is restless and will always be until it finds rest in God. Those are the best times. And the, the promise is we can return to those better times. Come back to your first husband, to anyone who has left the church or has left God He waits with open arms. Just come home. In verse 8 and 9, she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal or Baal. It wasn't coming from those false gods. It was coming from me, from Jehovah. He goes on, therefore will I return and take away my corn in the time thereof and my wine in the season thereof. I will recover my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. You see, with the divorce, if that's what it's come to, then we no longer have a shared bank account. Remember, we've used this metaphor, this analogy before, that it's not so much a matter of your assets, since we don't really have any, or our liabilities, which we have a ton of. It's more a matter of, am I still in a joint account with my eternal, long-suffering, generous spouse? As long as our, both of our names are on the bank account, then it's okay for me. I'm not trying to run up the tab. I'm not trying to presume upon his grace because that, forget the bank account, that, that's, there's some struggle in the marriage then. And we're not talking about accountants' problems. We're talking about marriage therapist problems. And so in this case, God is going to take these things away so you know what it feels like to be completely on your own. Times when the Spirit withdraws and you feel that abandonment. And it's not God abandoning you as much as it was you abandoning God. But now you know what it feels like. And this false sense of security that somehow you've convinced yourself of. And you've been propping yourself up thinking, well, look, I'm still doing okay. How long is that going to last? Until these things and my corn, my wool, my flax. It's been the Lord's all along. And if you want to sever the relationship, if you want to walk away and divorce things, if you're going to sign the papers, then you need to know what it feels like to be completely on your own. And so it goes. In verse 10 through 12, Now will I discover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. Everything's going to be exposed here. None shall deliver her out of mine hand. I will also cause all her mirth to cease. Her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, all her solemn feasts. The party's over. Okay? This is the female equivalent of the prodigal son. You were living it up in that far country, wasting your inheritance in riotous living. Well, the money's gone. The mirth has ceased. And who's going to help you now? He goes on, I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, whereof she hath said, These are my rewards that my lovers have given me, and I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. Cause that for reducing things down to the bare minimum? You thought all of this was for you? Well, let's pull you out and let the beasts of the field eat these things. These were not gifts that your lovers were giving you. This was not the payment for your prostitution. These were gifts from a loving husband that was just hoping you'd come home. Think about what, what Gomer in this instance, what she must be realizing. That here I ha- I've been living it up all this time and thinking that when food appears, when I have clothing to wear, I've been crediting the people with whom I've been unfaithful. When in reality, it's been my husband behind the scenes bailing me out of my problems, providing for me, putting money in the account. And what have I been spending it on? The very things that are ruining the relationship. If Gomer has any conscience at all, in this case, if Israel does, if we do, we have to be faithful to a husband who has always been faithful to us. In verse 13, he says, I will visit upon her the days of Balaam, or Baalim, that's the plural of Baal, wherein she burned incense to them. And she decked herself with her earrings and her jewels, and she went after her lovers and forgot me, saith the Lord. I don't know of a more brutal act of forgetting than infidelity. You would have to close off every thought of your actual spouse. And anytime they pop back in, just drive them out. I can't, I can't think about that. And so to forget God, forget family, forget the consequences of the sin that you're committing, that's adultery. That's infidelity. That's apostasy. It's amazing to think how much forgetting has to go in to that kind of departure from God. And to leave behind... I've talked about the three shelves repeatedly. And when people talk about their shelf breaking and everything come crashing down... That's the third shelf. The first was the things that you were meant to remember. The goodness of God, his blessings. And yet here, having forgotten those things, of course, it's easy to feel forsaken when you're the one that's forsaken God. But, again, hope is only one verse away. In verse 14 and 15, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her again into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. I will give her her vineyards from thence and the valley of Akor for a door of hope. And she shall sing there as in the days of her youth and as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. That is such a beautiful passage. She'll sing there like the days of youth, like when she came out of Egypt. What's he referring to? Exodus. When after 400 years of feeling forgotten, God sent a deliverer sent a a savior salvation hoshea come out and this singing the picture of the song of miriam as they've crossed the the red sea on dry ground those were days of incredible joy and what had god set before them a door of hope wide open just come through it come into the promised land and keep the promise please Or when he says, I will allure her. We saw, was it back in Jeremiah, I think, when there was that beautiful role reversal to the point that the bride is the one wooing the husband? Uh, Imagine that, where it is us that is begging the Lord to come and, and marry himself to us. Well, in this case, what I mean, that's how it should be. It should be Gomer that's groveling, just begging her way back to Hosea, please let me back. And yet, here in his incredible compassion, I will allure her. I will try to woo her all over again. Even though I've been the steady faithful one from day one. I'll do it again. When he says, I will speak comfortably to her. Can you hear Handel's Messiah again in the background? You remember that beautiful note in Isaiah chapter 40? Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. And then the next line, speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem. Here, Hosea is doing that for Gomer. Jehovah is doing that for Israel. Speak comfortably. Open the door of hope. He then says in verse 16 and 17, it shall be at that day when it finally happens, when you finally come back, and accept my allurements. When, when you know that this comfortable speech is meant to comfort you. And that you actually walk through the door of hope. Then what happens? This is so beautiful. At, it shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Ishi, and shall call me no more Baali. For I will take away the names of Baalim out of her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name. It's amazing how much names factor into the book of Hosea. Everyone we've met so far has a symbolic name. And these are symbolic titles as well. Remember, this is the husband speaking, right? Uh, but the husband that, that the, woman has, the wife has been unfaithful to. But now she's coming home. She's walked through the door of hope. And once she recognizes her husband for who he really is and who he's always been, she no longer calls him Ba'ali. Or, and that name Baal, Baal means lord it means master is another way to say it and remember the I at the end, that suffix is mine so Baali means my lord or my master, that's what she used to call him he was the taskmaster that made me do all these things he was the one that limited my freedom and tried to trap me within the confines of covenant Talk about a misperception of God's love. But once you leave and realize what life without God is like, once you hit rock bottom and come to your senses, once you turn around and re-enter the door of hope and see that it was the Lord that was providing for you, even in those wilderness wanderings, that it was him holding out the door of hope, (laughs) propping it open for you, making sure it never got locked shut. Once that happens, and you recognize the Lord's infinite mercy, you don't call him my master anymore. It's not Ba'ali, it's Ishi, which means my husband. Do you see the, the, the difference, the transition there? When you can see the Lord not as a demanding taskmaster, but as a loving husband, it changes everything if you can, again, like we've done all year long, truly study the Old Testament and get past the mentality that God is angry and vengeful and realize that his compassions fail not. They're new every morning. If we can get past the thought of Jesus simply as, I think I've said this before, a conversation, a hard conversation, but a good one with someone that I love, saying, when are you going to love Jesus? And they got so mad saying, how dare you? You know I love Jesus. And I said, I know you do. As as a teacher, as an example, as a guide, because you've always followed him. I'm just wondering when you're going to love him as a savior, as a redeemer. Because that's how you need him now. You've never needed him in that way until this point. Now you need him like that. He's been, he felt like a good master because you were following. But even a good master is nothing compared to a loving husband. And to realize what the Lord really is, who God really is, and how he really feels about us. If you think you've gone too far, if you think you've done too much, then quit looking at God as your master and look at him for who he really is. That's why he chooses names like father and and, and analogies, metaphors like husband because this is a real relationship for him. A God who weeps out of sorrow as well as out of joy because he loves us. In verse 18, and in that day, so we're still talking about, remember 16, at that day, 18, in that day. We, he seems to be pointing us forward to this latter day fulfillment. In that day will I make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven, with the creeping things of the ground. When was the last time you thought, you thought about beasts and fowls and creeping things? Sound like Genesis 1? Sound like a new creation? I mean, it is a new covenant, after all, that is being reestablished in the latter days. To think about all things new as God is trying once again to bring us out of chaos and out of darkness into a place, spiritually speaking, where he can say we are very good. That's what the restoration is for. He says, I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth. I will make them to lie down safely. Again, we're back to the Garden of Eden. He has replaced cherubim and the flaming sword with the door of hope and he's told us we can all come back home that's the promise that's that's what the restoration is for in verse 19 and 20 and I will betroth thee unto me forever how's that for a reestablished marriage vow let's start over I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness he says what would it be like if that were the basis of our relationship betroth thee in righteousness, and in judgment, and in loving kindness, and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know the Lord. And that know there is that Yada verb in Hebrew, which is not mere intellectual assent. It's not just nod in our head and go, Oh yeah, I know that. No, this is intimacy even along the lines of marital intimacy. To be that one. No distance between us. No holding back. This is a full surrender. Submission. To a God who gives everything to us in return. This is the new covenant. This is the new heart that Jeremiah talks about. That Ezekiel talks about. That Alma talks about in the Book of Mormon. This is restoration. This is renewal. This is a spiritual resurrection for all of us. It's getting married all over again. It's actually fascinating. My wife's grandparents, amazing souls. Uh, I got to meet them shortly when, when I first met my wife. I got to meet her grandpa shortly before he passed away and then spent some wonderful years with her grandma, who was as good as gold. And in some ways is the Hosea in this story. I mean, my father-in-law is Job. It would be fitting then that his mother would be another Old Testament figure, and she's Hosea. Because in a time of weakness, her husband was unfaithful. And it devastated the family, obviously. But what was interesting is as years passed and he hit rock bottom and came to his senses and realized what he'd done and the damage he'd caused his family. With a broken heart and a contrite spirit, he returned. And with a heart like the Lord's, his wife forgave him. I mean, there had been a divorce because he had gone off and married this, the person with whom he'd been unfaithful again devastated until the whole family but when that marriage ended and he he reached out again it, it's amazing how this happened and the fact that they got married a second time that's Hosea that's the Lord that's all of us and to look at that same, this saintly grandmother with such a broken heart but giving her husband a second chance to say we can begin again, we can start over. I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and judgment and loving kindness and mercy and faithfulness. Just please be faithful to me this time. And he was. It's amazing that God is willing to give second chances, knowing what it cost him. Again, that's why the banking metaphor falls short because it's like, oh, I can cover it. i got plenty of money. No, that's why the marriage metaphor is so much more real and visceral and gut-check. Just, could I do that? Could I forgive an unfaithful spouse? God does. And this new covenant, this new promise... That's what assures us that the door of hope remains open. By the end of this chapter, verse 21 through 23, it shall come to pass in that day. So again, he's putting all his eggs in the last day's basket within the restoration. In that day, I will hear, saith the Lord. I will hear the heavens and they shall hear the earth. (laughs) When you're trying to patch up a, a struggling marriage, communication is key, right? So we hear, we listen To one another. And here the hearing is connecting heaven and earth. And the earth shall hear the corn and the wine and the oil, all of these things that God has been providing all along. They shall hear Jezreel, that first child of theirs, hear the sowing of seeds of mercy and the reaping of the fruits of forgiveness. They shall hear Jezreel, and I will sow her unto me in the earth. That's what God is planting. There's Jezreel. I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. There's Ruhama. I will say to them which were not my people, thou art my people. There's Lo-Ami. And together they shall say thou art my God. There's the reversing of the names. There's the restoring of the relationship. There's the healing of the family. And it all comes because of the compassion of Christ merciful Old Testament you better believe it the final chapter in this autobiographical section is a very brief one in chapter 3 but again it reassures us that there are second chances and third and fourth and fifth and as often as my people repent I will forgive them just stay my people he says in verse 1, Then said the Lord unto me, Go yet, love a woman beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress, according to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love flagons of wine. The New International Version of that uh, renders it slightly different. He says, Go show your love to your wife again. In the King James, it's like, wait, is he having to do this a second time with someone else? Uh, it, 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 other translations suggest, no, this is probably just a repeat of what of what he was said to do before. Go find Gomer. Show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. What King James translators call flagons of wine, most modern translations describe as sacred raisin cakes. And it was some kind of offering they would give to their pagan gods by way of, pagan sacrifice. Well, that has to change. We're not, it's, it's not those kinds of worship rituals. It is offering to God the sacrifice of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. But again, to think there's actually several ways. Is this just a repeat? Are we seeing a second version of what he's already been doing? Or another possibility, a real possibility. If Gomer has been a promiscuous woman for, for a long time. And it's hard for her to change, to get out of those addictive types of behaviors. Has she fallen back? And is it at some point where one of her lovers feels like he owns her? Because what you'll see in verse 2 is a ransom, a redemption it says, so I bought her to me for 15 pieces of silver and for an homer of barley and a half homer of barley. You see, to buy even a mere slave, it's going to cost you 30 pieces of silver. And yet for this adulterous woman, would you, I'll take, it's all right, I'll, I'll take 15. And if you can throw in a, oh, a little bit of barley, and barley was, that's, It's one of Ezekiel bread's ingredients. That's poor man's grain. That's often the grain you use to feed the animals instead of the people. But yeah, throw in some of that. She's not worth anything to me. Less than a slave. That's the, the, the depths to which this unfaithful woman has sunk. And yet, Hosea is willing to pay the ransom? If we were making this a modern version Picture this wife who has been unfaithful. Perhaps she's been involved in other addictive behaviors and self-destructive behaviors as well. And imagine if she's now at a point where she is in prison. And who's going to pay her bail? Certainly not her lovers. They used her for what they wanted and then have cast her aside. And now there she is behind bars. And no one's going to save her now least of all her husband, because she did all these things against him. And yet, who comes? Probably not even needing that one phone call. He keeps his heart open and his eyes looking out. What mess has she gotten herself into now? And he comes. And he pays bail. He makes restitution for whatever she's broken, including his own heart. And here he is, come home. You're worth nothing to the world. All they asked was 15 pieces of silver and some barley. But you mean everything to me. Because what has the Lord paid our ransom with? His own precious blood. And if we understand that the worth of souls is great in the sight of God, yeah, the world might sell you for less than the value of a slave. But the Lord will offer his all to redeem you. Verse 3, I said unto her, Thou shalt abide for me many days. Thou shalt not play the harlot. Thou shalt not be for another man. So will I also be for thee. Forgiveness can happen instantaneously, but recovery takes time. And so here Hosea is offering her that time. Just abide with me. Don't play the harlot. Don't go to another man. Don't even come in unto me. Let this period of purification pass. This is like the time that might elapse between confessing to a bishop and being allowed to return to the temple or to full fellowship or to be able to partake of the sacrament. This is not punishment. This is preparation. This is purification. So let's wait a while. This is the 40 years of, wa- of wandering in the wilderness. But then let's come together again. Verse 4 and 5, this small chapter ends, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king without a prince, without a sacrifice, without an image, without an ephod, without teraphim. This is Israel in its scattered state. You won't have any of those things. This is a new period of purification, and it'll be more than 40 years in the wilderness this time. But afterward shall the children of Israel return. And that return is always used as the word for repent. After this time without anything, they'll come back and seek the Lord their God and David their king and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. That's where it becomes obvious where Hosea is pointing. The days of restoration, the days of reconciliation, the days of repentance, the days of the gathering of Israel. What a day that we get to be a part of. In many ways, we are marriage therapists as well as good shepherds, we are trying to gather everyone back home to God and patch up a relationship that he is very eager to rekindle. Now, like I said, those first three chapters are the most well-known chapters of Hosea. They're the autobiographical ones. It's the visual aid. It's the object lesson. As much of a gut check as it would have been. The rest of this book is then Hosea preaching and prophesying. I'm, I've already put my money where my mouth is. Uh, I've, I've acted it out. I've embodied these realities. Maybe now you'll take my words seriously. And so he begins to preach. Hosea chapter 4 verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel. For the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. So a controversy, uh, a court case, a complaint. Because there is no truth nor mercy, there's the low ruhama, nor knowledge of God in the land. You, you just don't get it. Hosea is making his case against Israel. This is an indictment. This is divorce court. For breach of covenant, a breaking of the marital vows. Verse 2, by swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break out and blood toucheth blood. How's that for a quick review of the Ten Commandments? The sixth, thou shalt not kill, Lo, kill. And yet they've killed. The seventh, thou shalt not commit adultery. It's another one you've broken. The eighth, thou shalt not steal. That's another on this list. Ninth, thou shalt not bear false witness. He's listed them all. Lying, killing, stealing, adultery. Guilty as charged as he's laying out the evidence. Then verse 3, therefore shall the land mourn, and everyone that dwelleth therein shall languish with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven. Yea, the fishes of the sea also shall be taken away. Again, sounds like creation. Their wickedness is affecting all of it. All of creation is mourning because of what Israel is doing. Verse 4 and 5, Yet let no man strive, nor reprove another. For thy people are as they that strive with the priest. Talk about obstinance. Talk about rebellion. You're pushing back against God's chosen servants. They're your, your only hope. Therefore shalt thou fall in the day, and the prophet also shall fall with thee in the night. There's, how's that for apostasy? I mean, you weren't listening to them anyway. And finally, and I will destroy thy mother. And we're switching we're mixed metaphors. Are you the wife? Is she the mother? Take your pick. But without a mother, who's going to care for you? In your scattered condition, far away from the help of home, what hope do you have? He says in verse 6, my people are destroyed, and notice the reason why. They are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because thou hast rejected knowledge. So this is willful ignorance. It's not just, oh, nobody told me. No, you wouldn't listen. They rejected knowledge, and as a result, I will also reject thee, that thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God. I will also forget thy children. This is poetic justice, my friends. This is the law of the harvest, Jezreel. You have sown and now you will reap. And what, what is it? You're reaping the consequences of your own willful ignorance. They're in captivity. They're destroyed because you don't know where freedom lies. You don't know where the door of hope is. You're caught in this maze and it's become a trap for you you remember what Jesus would say in the book of John? You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Well, the opposite is also true. If you don't know the truth, then how can you be set free? You don't know there's an escape route. You don't know there's an open door. If you don't know about resurrection, then death is final. If you don't know about repentance, then you are stuck in your sins if you don't know about eternal families, then how do you know how to navigate family life on this earth? There's so much in this verse that I just love as you ponder, what what do I need to know to get out of the situation I'm in? Because so often it is a knowledge kind of thing, and we're destroyed for lack of it. That's why we need to be learning and coming to a knowledge of the truth. In verse 7, as they were increased, so they sinned against me. Therefore will I change their glory into shame. That's about the shortest description of the pride cycle I've ever seen. They increased, in other words, they were prospered, but as a result, they sinned. Uh, the pride went to their head. Remember, it's, it's my lovers that are giving me all of these things. It's these pagan gods that are providing for me. No. And so having then alienated God, I'm back left to myself. And as a result, that glory turns into shame. Now I've hit rock bottom. What am I going to do? Am I going to turn back to God? In which case I'll change, repent, and he will prosper me again. Again, that is the, the pride cycle that we see so often in scripture. Sadly, that we so often live in real life as well. Then he says in verse 8 through 10, They eat up the sin of my people, and they set their heart on their iniquity. There shall be like people, like priests, and I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their doings. For they shall eat and not have enough. They shall commit whoredom and shall not increase, because they have left off to take heed to the Lord. Think about those phrases, like people, like priests. What would happen if the priests were no better than the people? Talk about the blind leading the blind until they both fall into the ditch. Talk about covering the eyes of the seers and closing the mouths of those that are meant to reveal. Like people, like priests, that's a problem. To the point of eating, but you're never satisfied. Sound like life in Babylon? Sound like (laughs) feasting upon the wickedness of the world that is so hollow, so shallow that it doesn't leave... It leaves you emptier than when you start. They've committed whoredoms, but no increase. Interesting that there's there's no childbirth. There's no... You're not producing good. You're only producing evil. Then Hosea goes on to explain the wickedness of Israel, their covenant infidelity, and finally says in verse 15, Though thou, Israel, play the harlot... Yet let not Judah offend. And come not ye unto Gilgal, neither go ye up to Beth-Avon, nor swear the Lord liveth. It's really interesting that Hosea is a northern prophet that keeps referring to the southern kingdom. And in this verse, we'll see more of that later, but in this one it seems like he's almost trying to protect Judah from the influence of Israel. Remember it was Jeremiah that described them as sisters. And Unfortunately, the big sister, Israel, was setting a horrible example for the little sister, Judah. And though it took another century plus, Judah sadly fell down the same path. Here, Hosea is hoping that's not the case. Yes, Israel is off playing the harlot. Please, Judah, learn from their mistakes. Often I'll talk with students that are younger siblings and they see their older siblings have abandoned God. And they don't want to, these younger siblings. But it's hard sometimes to set an example upward when usually it's the ones that are above that should be setting the example below. Nephi struggled with that with Laman and Lemuel. And I'm even thinking of a student I'm currently teaching, a wonderful young woman who just is accused by her older siblings of being naive because she's still holding on to her faith. Oh, I pray that she might be protected from those negative influences please father let not judah offend well chapter 5 you do see the these are sisters israel and judah and it's hard for the example of one not to affect the life of the other so we see in verse 1 and then in verse 3 hear ye this o priests and hearken ye house of israel and give ye ear o house of the king for judgment is toward you, because you have been a snare on Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor. Notice who he's listening: The priests, the king, the people. So this is church. This is state. This is the people. This is everyone. And they're, they're causing problems. He says, I know Ephraim. That's the northern kingdom. Israel is not hid from me. For now, O Ephraim, thou committest whoredom, and Israel is defiled. I know what's happening. I know you, even if you refuse to know me, you cannot hide your behaviors from my all-seeing eye. Verse 5, the pride of Israel doth testify to his face. Therefore shall Israel and Ephraim fall in their iniquity. And then he brings in the southern kingdom. Judah also shall fall with them. Despite his earlier prayers about Judah not offending, it would only last so long before they followed the same negative Descent. This is imminent destruction in the northern kingdom and eventual destruction in the south. So he says in verse 9 and 10, Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel have I made known that which shall surely be. Then shifting southward, the princes of Judah were like them that remove the bound. Therefore I will pour out my wrath upon them like water. Think of that phrase, removing the bound. If you think about stakes in the ground or a barbed wire fence to show where your farm ends and the next farm begins, uh, to think about old chalk lines on the football field, out of bounds versus what's in. And if you are pulling up stakes, if you are removing bounds, if I'm trying to extend my territory illegally, or eliminate the possibility of ever of have, ever having anything out of bounds. Does that sound like a pretty good description of today's moral relativism, where they have erased any of those dividing lines to the point that once we remove the bounds, who's to say that I'm ever outside of it? That's a pretty good way to turn good evil and evil good. That's what's happening in both North and Southern Kingdom. Verse 12, therefore will I be unto Ephraim as a moth and to the house of Judah as rottenness. Again, north, there's Ephraim, there's Israel. South, there's Judah. Moths up north, rottenness down south. Either way, both kingdoms are in a state of spiritual decay. Then in verse 13 and 14, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound. See always going back and forth between north and south. Then went Ephraim to the Assyrian and sent to King Jerob, Yet could he not heal you, nor cure you of your wound. You see, the northern kingdom was turning to Assyria in hopes of being safe against Assyria. It's like paying off the bully. That never ends well. Meanwhile, the southern kingdom is turning to the Lord at that time and is being delivered. But will that change? Well, we know that it does. I will be unto Ephraim as a lion, Hosea goes on to say, and as a young lion to the house of Judah, I, even I, will tear and go away. I will take away, and none shall rescue him. See what you've done? The Lord is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And this is a lion that could have protected you from your enemies. Unfortunately, you've turned the lion into your enemy. Because you've been acting like an enemy against him. This is like a, a tame lion turning on its trainer. And that's exactly what's going to happen when Assyria comes to the north and Babylon comes to the south. Then finally, verse 15, I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Just realize what you've done. And seek my face, turn around and come home. In their affliction, they will seek me early. But that's what it's going to take to get to that point. Again, we are with, in the parable of the prodigal son. And not until you are eating with the swine do you have thoughts of returning home in hopes of eating once again with your father. But he's waiting. If you'll just acknowledge your offense and seek my face, the door of hope remains open. In chapter 6, there's another door he's looking through, and this is the door to the human heart. I need to see how things are on the inside, not just the outside. All these outward ordinances are meant for something internal to occur. But unfortunately, you've been checking external boxes without much internal change. So he says in chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, Come, let us return unto the Lord. That was incredibly generous, by the way, for Hosea to use the plural, us. He could have said, you all need to return to the Lord. I'm already with him. But no, let us return to the Lord. For he hath torn, there's the lion, and he will heal us. He hath smitten, we deserved it, and he will bind us up. After two days will he revive us. In the third day he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. It's amazing how quick the Lord is to forgive. It might be a few days of feeling what it's like to be on our own. But to be revived on the second day, to be raised up on the third, and yes, I do wonder if there's also a, a subtle hint to the resurrection in that verse. Because what is it that truly allows us to change? It was Christ's self-sacrifice. It was Gethsemane and Calvary and Garden Tomb. It was a day of, it was a night of suffering and a day of An agonizing death. But then after two days, and then on the third, there was reviving and raising up. This is all through Jesus Christ. In verse 3, then shall we know, if we follow on to know the Lord, his going forth is prepared as the morning, and he shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and former rain unto the earth. I love that. If we follow on to know the Lord. Often when I meet with somebody who's struggling in their faith and they're describing all the, the, the things that they're wrestling with, I'll often say, ah, oh, congratulations on progressing to this point. And they're like, huh? Progressing? It feels like I've been going the wrong way. It's like, well, eh, yes and no. But you've learned a lot and you've matured in some of your outlooks. Uh, don't, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. But, but you are growing up in some ways. This is creation to fall. But don't stop in the fall. As I've said to them, you've progressed somewhat to get here. Don't stop progressing. Because East of Eden is a lousy place to set up permanent camp. If you'll just keep going beyond it, the incline of atonement lies ahead. So keep progressing. I, I love the way he puts it. If you follow on to know the Lord... He's there. Keep on going. When he says that it's prepared as the morning, the great thing about that, morning always seems to come. And no matter how dark the night, the light returns, his compassions are new every morning. And then when he talks about the rain, as the latter rain, as the former rain, it'll come. Yes, Israel is a fairly arid land, but when it rains, it really rains. When I was there, I think I remember reading that it had the same annual precipitation as London, I believe. It just wasn't kind of the the kind of soggy air that London is sometimes known for, uh, kind of the the general drizzle. No, there's just dry seasons that last a long time. But then wet seasons where there's a lot of rain. Some in the former, some in the latter. But it'll come. So just repent. And like the night... Like the day follows the night, forgiveness will follow your repentance. That's the promise. New every morning. He then says in verse 4 and 5, O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? There's the north. O Judah, what shall I do unto thee? There's the south. For your goodness is as a morning cloud, as the early dew. It goeth away. Now you understand Hosea was a genius when it came to similes and metaphors. We'll see a lot of these. But if your righteousness and goodness is like the morning cloud, that then just almost picture like the as growing up in southern California there would be morning fog. But just give it time. It's going to burn off or early dew. Yeah, just give it time. It'll evaporate and that's the problem. Your goodness is like dew. It's here for a moment and then it's gone. Uh, It's like the cloud that just blows away. Talk about fleeting faith. Talk about unenduring obedience. That's what they're guilty of. Therefore, he says, have I hewed them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And thy judgments are as the light that goeth forth. Now think about that. That's some strong imagery. I have hewed them by the prophets. And then he repeats it. By the way, most of Hosea is poetry. And so you'll look for, for rhyming ideas, and that's a good example of it. I hewed them, cut them, chopped them by the prophets, and then I, again, I have slain them by the words of my mouth. In section 1 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which is the preface to this dispensation's book of Scripture, it's how the Lord wants us to approach these last days, putting it all in context. And in it, there are so many hints of Old Testament things in, in Doctrine and Covenants 1, by the way. But among other places, it talks about God having a sword in hand and his arm, his, his, the sword is bathed in heaven. In other words, it's it been unsheathed. And it's in his arm and it talks about that arm is about to fall down upon the earth. And in that context, it talks about the words of his servants. And if you'll hear them or not, because if you won't, then you are cut off from his people. Cut off by what? Oh, by the sword. That's bathed in heaven. What's the sword and the armor of God? Oh, it's the word of God and sharpened by the spirit of God. Hmm. God's about to speak again. Doctrine and Covenants. And that word will come forth sharper than a two-edged sword to the dividing asunder of joint and marrow. It will divide people in good ways. Dividing us from our lesser selves. But also hard ways, dividing people, those that will listen, from those that refuse to. This is powerfully put, to be hewn by prophets. To be slain by the words of God's mouth. These are hard sayings, who can hear them? Hopefully us. Will we listen to the words of the prophets? Now verse 6, beautiful, powerful, famous verse in Hosea. For I desired mercy, and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. I mentioned at the beginning of this this chapter, it was a door to the inward rather than the outward. And here you see it. What the Lord was after the whole time was inner attributes, not merely outward actions. The actions were the means. The inwards were the ends. But if you confuse means and ends, if you confuse outward with inward and think, well, I've, d- I've done it. Check off the box. I did the thing. I sacrificed. Ah, but, it, but it never translated into a sacrifice of your sins. I, I gave my burnt offerings. Yeah. And they went up in smoke. Along with any hope that you would actually change as a result of it. You know, Jesus himself knew Hosea and quotes that exact verse when the Pharisees are murmuring over the fact that Jesus would have the gall to eat with publicans and sinners. Ah, disgusting. Jesus responds to them, Go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See what Jesus just did? Jesus quoted Hosea 6, 6 to people that were guilty of external observance without inner attributes motivating them. And so, of course, Jesus was going to hang out with publicans and sinners because he saw their heart and the righteous righteous desires that were there. And if I can coax that out, then everything will be well. I love that the Lord is quoting this this verse. The chapter then goes on, verse 9, And as troops of robbers wait for a man, so the company of priests murder in the way by consent, for they commit lewdness. Talk about apostasy. That company of priests is no better than a troop of robbers. They're stealing your spirituality, probably through false assurances. Remember, untempered mortar, a refuge of lies, just telling you what you want to hear, scratching those itching ears. False prophets giving you false hopes through false assurances. Yeah, there's a troop of robbers for you. Then ten and eleven, I have seen an horrible thing in the house of Israel. There is the whoredom of Ephraim, Israel is defiled. Also, O Judah, he hath set an harvest for thee when I return the captivity of my people. Both kingdoms, north and south, will reap what they sow, Jezreel. North is just going to come first. But wait. Now, chapter 7 of Hosea then is filled with more similes for sin. I told you he was good with this kind of imagery. He was kind of a junior Isaiah just further north. Notice how many he brings up in chapter 7. Verse 1 and 2. When I would have healed Israel, then the iniquity of Ephraim was discovered, and the wickedness of Samaria. For they commit falsehood, and the thief cometh in, and the troop of robbers spoileth without And they consider not in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their own doings have beset them about. They are before my face. How's this for an initial analogy? God is a doctor. We are his patient. And he would have healed Israel. The doctor's making house calls. He's come with his little black bag. And he's ready to stitch up a minor wound that we noticed. And yet, as he does so, he discovers cancer instead. Okay, He came to heal, but then the iniquity was fully discovered. And there's some some major work that's going to need to be done by way of healing. Or when he says that they don't consider that I remember all their wickedness. Do they really think I'm that forgetful and that clueless? Well, didn't you say, I, the Lord, will remember them no more? Well, yeah, if you repent of them. But if you don't, then yes, I remember all your wickedness. And you trying to play yourself off like you're a first-time offender... Oh, can't you please just... This is you trying to convince the policeman. I never speed. Can you just give me a warning? Can you let me off with a warning just this once? But then when he looks up your record and sees all kinds of outstanding tickets you've never paid and warrants for your arrest and... Yeah, first-time offender? I don't think so. That's the problem with Israel. He goes on with a new simile in verse 4. They are all adulterers as an oven heated by the baker who ceaseth from raising after he hath kneaded the dough until it be leavened. That makes more sense in the New International Version that says you're burning like an oven whose fire the baker need not stir from the kneading of the dough till it rises. The idea here is uh, just imagine how hot you'd have to preheat the oven if it's going to take a while to go from the kneading of the dough and then letting it rise a bit and then putting it in. If you just put in... Again, this is firewood, okay? You put some in, you light it, and you're trying to get things hot enough. But then you turn to do other things, to work in the, in the, the bread making itself. And if you're not adding wood to the, to the flame, it's starting to die out. And do I have enough heat left over to cook my food on? Well, in this case, this oven is so overheated that he can then turn to other things and let the the bread rise and everything. And oh, by the time I'm ready to go back, oh, it's still hot enough to cook this stuff. In fact, hot enough probably to burn it. Is that a pretty good description of the fires of lust that burn within people? That even if they were to be distracted by something else, their mind's still racing, their lust is still burning. And I mean, this is the the kinds of addiction that my wife works with as an addiction recovery counselor, that trying to give coping skills and distractions and things just what you do in the moment. But if it's overheated to the point that none of that is sufficient, that's describing the wickedness of Israel at this time. Other interests don't even cool down the fires of sin. In verse 6 and 7, similar imagery. For they have made ready their heart like an oven. Whilst they lie in wait, their baker sleepeth all the night. In the morning it burneth as a flaming fire. The NIV of that one says, their passion smolders all night. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. They are all hot as an oven, Hosea continues, and have devoured their judges. All their kings are fallen. There is none among them that calleth unto me. All this fire imagery sure does seem appropriate especially when it comes to covenant infidelity being described as adultery. I've mentioned this quote before, but Will and Ariel Durant, a husband-wife team of amazing historians, as they were trying to pull out lessons from history, how about this one, from a pair of non-Latter-day Saints talking about chastity, a lesson learned the hard way from civilizations that, that let go of any kind of sexual mores. They said that sex is a river of fire that must be banked and cooled by a hundred restraints if it is not to consume in chaos both the individual and the group. I think I've mentioned here before that that was a quote I shared with my teenage son at one point when he was so open to receive it to the point that it's burned, pun intended, in his memory and... And often when he sees someone in a situation that might lead to the, the kind of being burned by these kinds of temptations, he'll just look over and, and smile and say, banked and cooled, banked and cooled. Now uh, He understands the heat of that river of fire and does all that he can, as we all should, to be able to navigate safely banking and cooling every, every chance we get. He goes on in verse 8, Ephraim, he hath mixed himself among the people, And then how's this for an interesting metaphor? Ephraim is a cake not turned. I mean, we've been talking about baking and bakers. We've been talking about fire. Well, if if you don't have even heat, and especially if you don't flip over the pancake, what's it going to look like? If this is a cake not turned, this is (laughs) such a great visual image. Have you ever cooked something that on one side is burned and the other side is totally raw? Talk about unproven contraries. Talk about missing the Goldilocks zone on both extremes. That my hot is too hot and my cold is too cold and I'm burned on one side and raw on the other. And was there a bite in that pancake anywhere that was evenly cooked? That describes describes our world pretty well too. A bunch of cakes not turned. He says in verse 9, Strangers have devoured his strength and he knoweth it not. Doesn't even realize how much strength he's lost. Yea, gray hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knoweth not. Now that one, that one hurts because the, the older I get and the grayer I become, <laughs> but I know it. I see it every day when I'm when I'm getting ready in the morning. When when my youngest daughter was little, and I would play with her and. And say, oh, your eyes are made of blueberries and your hair is made of sunshine. Because this cute little blue-eyed, blonde-haired little girl. And she'd laugh and look up at me and go, Daddy, and your hair is made of... And then she'd look and just like, what is that color? And she'd say, mud. Your hair is made of mud. And then she'd get this little devious smile and go, and snow. She was little, but yeah, she saw some gray there. Uh, she actually jokes since, all my kids do, that I've gone from snowy mud to muddy snow. The center of gravity has shifted to snow. It's more gray. But there's still a little mud in there, Dad. It's all right. Uh, but here, imagine somebody being so oblivious to that that they don't even realize. They, they're, they're gray hair, signs of age, signs of infirmity, signs of weakness. You're not a spring chicken anymore. Look at your hair, Dad. You don't have the strength you once did. Look around you, Israel. That's why I love this metaphor. I, I've sometimes joked. Uh, sometimes, I, I this was years ago, yeah, even less gray than I am now. I'd go to the gym with my wife, and every so often, I'd be try, trying to lift weights or something, and then I'd go and find her on a stationary bike somewhere, and I'd just walk up to her and roll my eyes and say, I'm a wuss. And then I'd go back to proving it and i would i would complain and say you know what when your body goes out of shape the least it could do is to take your memory with it because there's nothing worse than trying to lift weights and remembering what you used to be able to do and thinking my new max is less than my old warm-up weight that's embarrassing oh how far i have fallen And so I've always joked, it would have been better just to be oblivious to it all. But this verse has actually corrected me. Because imagine if I didn't know that I had become weak in my old age. And I was oblivious to all of that degeneration. And I thought, oh yeah, I'm as strong as I've ever been. And then I get crushed beneath the weight that I'm totally unprepared to lift. There's something good about gray hair reminding us in the morning that I'm not what I used to be. There's something good about recognizing I can't lift what I used to be able to. And Israel, are you aware of your apostasy? To think back, do I know the scriptures as well as I did on my mission? Do I feel as consecrated now as I did when I was serving in that old calling? How am I doing? Am I progressing and growing up in God or Am I getting old in the wrong kinds of ways, spiritually speaking? Next, in verse 10, he says, The pride of Israel testifieth to his face, and they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. I mean, come on, Israel. Your wickedness is staring your, you in the face. Do you not see what's before you in the mirror? This pride is going to lead to your destruction. It's getting closer and closer as we speak. In verse 11 and 12, another metaphor or simile. Ephraim also is like a silly dove without heart. Some kind of clueless bird that usually just kind of wanders around you. So unafraid of humans that they set themselves up for captivity far too easily. What a silly dove without heart. They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. When they shall go, I will spread my net upon them. I will bring them down as the fowls of the heaven. I will chastise them as their congregation hath heard. You birds aren't even smart enough to avoid the net. You're flying straight forward into your own self-destruction. You're turning to Egypt? They're no help. You're turning to Assyria? They are the enemy. Don't be a silly dove. He then says in 13, Though I have redeemed them... Yet they have spoken lies against me. And again in 15, though I have bound and strengthened their arms, yet do they imagine mischief against me. I'm doing everything I can to help you, and yet you turn against me every chance you have. Finally, he says in 16, they return, but not to the Most High. What a tragedy. Who are you returning to then? He says, they are like a deceitful bow. Another great simile there. Because what's the pr- problem with a bow? Think of bow and arrows. But the bow is deceitful. It tricks you. Imagine having a gun where the sights were off. And it's, it looks like you're aimed right at the target. But everything goes to, the, to one side. That's a deceitful bow for you. It cannot shoot straight. It always misses its target. He says, their princes shall fall by the sword for the rage of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. You want to turn to Egypt for help? (laughs) Well, you're going to end up helping the Egyptians as far as their sense of humor is concerned. Because you will be a mock and derision. You'll be a laughingstock down there. (laughs) They have nothing to offer you in the first place. Well, next is chapter 8. And in chapter 8, we see more of these warnings that Israel is forsaking the Lord and there will be consequences. There is a law of the harvest, right, Jezreel? So he says in verse 1, Set the trumpet to thy mouth. We would say, sound the alarm. He shall come as an eagle against the house of the Lord. An eagle there could also be translated as vulture, Is this a bird of prey bearing down to gobble us up? Or have we already been defeated and now it's a scavenger just coming to pick the bones? Either way, that's Assyria. They're going to swoop down upon Israel and there won't be much left after those 10 tribes have been scattered. Because they have transgressed my covenant, the Lord says. That's why the eagle or vulture is coming. They have trespassed against my law. Israel, this is on you. You've brought upon yourself your own self-destruction. So, verse 2 through 4, Israel shall cry unto me, My God, we know thee. Oh, do you? Do you really? It doesn't look like it. Israel hath cast off the thing that is good. So whatever truth or goodness you had, whatever was shielding you from this destruction, it's gone, you've thrown it away. And as a result, the enemy shall pursue him. There's a It's on its way. They have set up kings, but not by me. They have made princes, and I knew it not. Like what kind of leaders are you putting into place? Not the ones I would have chosen. Of their silver and their gold, have they made them idols that they may be cut off? This sounds, again, if we're back into the thought of a marriage and we're going to see the marriage therapist, with verses like that, they would look at you and go, do you two even live under the same roof anymore? Do you ever communicate? It's like you're living completely separate lives. You have cut each other off or cut yourself off from one another. No wonder this is not, this, this seems like an irredeemable relationship. No wonder it's coming to its end, its completion, Gomer. He then says in verse 5 and 6, Thy calf, O Samaria, has cast thee off. Mine anger is kindled against them. How long will it be ere they attain to innocency? For from Israel was it also, the workmen made it, therefore it is not God. But the calf of Samaria shall be broken in pieces. What's the talk about this calf in these two verses? Remember, this is the northern kingdom. And when the north split off from the south in the days of Jeroboam and Rehoboam, Jeroboam's plan was, I've got to set up some kind of counterfeit temple. Because the real temple's in Jerusalem, and that's in Judah. And my people will want to go back down south to be a part of it. So let's create our own places of worship. And what better than a golden calf to symbolize it? So he sets one up in the north of the kingdom, one down in the south of the kingdom. We're going to try to make worship as convenient as we possibly can. Let's make it easy on people. Cheap grace, how's that? Uh, and these calves are the, the symbol of the problems of idolatry in, in Israel. And so that calf of Samaria will be broken in pieces. How's that for eliminating the competition? But I love this, the metaphor at the beginning. Thy calf, O Samaria, hath cast thee off. If you've ever been to a rodeo, and you picture a buck and bronco, or a bull, that would be scary. And to watch some, some ca- cowboy bucked off, thrown off, cast off a bull in all its strength, Well, this is a little more embarrassing because it's just a calf. When you take your feet out of the stirrups and you can touch the ground. I mean, it's just this little thing. And yet the calf is going to cast you off. (laughs) You bucked off by a little baby cow. Yeah. That's the weakness to which Israel has succumbed. He then says in verse 7, For they have sown the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. How's that for Jezreel? How's that for the law of the harvest? It hath no stock, the bud shall yield no meal. If so be it yield, the stranger shall swallow it up. What he's describing there again, law of the harvest, the whirlwind's coming, and after a whirlwind, there's nothing left. But even if there were, let's say there's a stock that's left. Well, there's still no bud that brings no meal. Well, let's say that something does somehow grow. Okay, fine, the strangers swallow it up. You still don't get to eat it yourself. There's, there's nothing left for you because you sowed the wind. He then says in verse 8, Israel is swallowed up. Now shall they be among the Gentiles. There's the scattering of Israel among the other nations as a vessel wherein is no pleasure. So another simile, okay? a pot that nobody wants. Uh, this is some old discarded piece of pottery, uh, good for nothing. Nobody wants it. And that describes these lost tribes. Well, God wants it. (laughs) Ultimately, they will be gathered home, but that's still way off in the future. In verse 9 through 10, for they are gone up to Assyria, a wild ass alone by himself. Can you picture this wandering donkey? I told you Hosea was good with his similes and his metaphors. Ephraim hath hired lovers, he says, but then uh, notice the mercy one verse away. Yea, though they have hired among the nations, now will I gather them. And they shall sorrow a little for the burden of the king of princes. Now, that last phrase is a tricky one. We're seeing this amidst the promise of the eventual gathering, but to sorrow a little for the burden of the king of the princes. Now, some scholars have said, well, the king of the princes, that sounds, that's probably the king of Assyria because he's in charge of all these other little kingdoms that he's conquered. And the burden of that king is the tribute that the king of Assyria demands from his conquered peoples. And yeah, that's going to bring a little sorrow, don't you think? That you're using so much of what could be used to bless you you and your own people, but you're using to pay off the bully down the block. Now that I think is a good interpretation. But also if you think about the king, the capital K, the true king of princes, the king of kings. And if you think about the burden that is placed upon him, not the one that he imposes, but the one that he accepts, so that the scattered can be gathered, so that the repentant can be redeemed. Once we realize what he's done for us, then will we sorrow a little for that burden? When we realize how many drops of blood he shed for us, will we drop some tears for him. Will we sorrow a little because of his burden? If so, it'll change us. Then the rest of this chapter he describes more wickedness and then concludes in verse 14 For Israel hath forgotten his Maker and buildeth temples, but not the right kind. Judah hath multiplied fenced cities, but they're not going to protect them. I will send a fire upon his cities and it shall devour the palaces thereof both kingdoms north and south are leaving God and they will suffer the consequences and the ultimate consequence the immediate one at least for the northern kingdom is that scattering and that's what chapter 9 is about in verse 1 and 3 rejoice not O Israel for joy as other people for thou hast gone a whoring from thy God thou hast loved a reward upon every corn floor And then jumping to verse 3, They shall not dwell in the Lord's land, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean things in Assyria. So whether it's to the south in Egypt, whether it's to the north in Assyria, you're going to be scattered to the winds. Verse 5 and 6, What will ye do in the solemn day, and in the day of the feast of the Lord? For lo, they are gone because of destruction. Egypt shall gather them up, Memphis shall bury them, The pleasant places for their silver. Nettles shall possess them. Thorns shall be in their tabernacles. This is the curse from the fall all over again. Nettles and thorns. Because you've fallen from your glory. You've turned from your God. I remember when COVID first hit. I was in the bishopric and couldn't use the churches for anything. It had been several weeks And I had to go go into the chapel to go get something. And it was so interesting to go into a building I hadn't been into in weeks. But as I walked up to the front door, there was a giant tumbleweed right there. I thought, I'd like never see tumbleweeds in my neighborhood. But somehow there was one right in front of the church door. And I thought, wow, there's some symbolism. That sadly, it's been so long since people have been able to come into this house of worship. But there's just tumbleweeds here. This is a spiritual ghost town. And to see what's being described here with nettles and thorns in the tabernacle, that would be tragic to see temples of God overgrown because no one's going there to worship. He then says in verse 7 and 8, the days of visitation are come. The days of recompense are come. It's time to, t- to pay the piper, my friends. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The spiritual man is mad for the multitude of thine iniquity and the great hatred. The watchman of Ephraim was with my God, but the prophet is a snare of the fowler in all his ways, and hatred is in the house of his God. This is kind of like what we saw earlier of like people, like prophets. And in this case, the prophets are as false as the people are. They've become traps to ensnare the people. And again, if you're building with untempered mortar and hiding behind a refuge of lies, if you're just scratching the itching ear and telling people what they want to hear, then yes, you are a snare of the fowler. You're trapping silly doves that were placing their trust in you. Verse 9, he then says, They have deeply corrupted themselves, as in the days of Gibeah. Therefore, he will remember their iniquity, he will visit their sins been a long time since we talked about Gibeah but back in the book of Judges it was there that this Levite his concubine was raped and murdered absolute devastation Uh, to think is society, has it descended to that level? It's one thing to call it spiritual Babylon, it's something to call it Sodom and Gomorrah but to refer to it as Gibeah, that was an infamous moment in Israelite history it was happening among people that should have known better in verse 10 and 11 he then says I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness I saw your fathers as the first ripe in the fig tree at her first time now think about those analogies if you're in the wilderness wandering and you're just dying of thirst and and hunger but you find grapes there it's okay something that's both food and drink together what a blessing. Or you're hungry and you see a fig tree and it's, it's early in the season, but you have some first ripe fruit. Talk about a welcome sight. Talk about wonderful potential. We're going to make it. But, the verse goes on. They went to Baal Peor and separated themselves unto that shame. And their abominations were according as they loved. They were a chosen people, but they chose to reject their God. Talk about sour grapes in the wilderness. Talk about a fig tree with no figs on it. Talk about lost potential. And as a result, as for Ephraim, their glory shall fly away like a bird from the birth and from the womb and from the conception. There's another bird expression and how's it used this time? How quickly your glory will fly away. You've scared off the God of Israel. Then verse 12, though they bring up their children, yet will I bereave them. This is the opposite of who hath begotten me these. You had all these kids, but they're gone. They're scattered. That there shall not be a man left. Yea, woe also to them when I depart from them. This is a mother losing her children. Verse 14 speaks of a miscarrying womb. Can you imagine that devastation? Expecting life. But only death presents itself. You're, if, unless you repent, you're not going to be forgiven this time. And so this is a womb that's bringing forth darkness and devastation, not life and joy. You've got to change. He says in 16, Ephraim is smitten. The root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Yea, though they bring forth, yet will I slay even the beloved fruit of their womb. That builds on what we saw earlier about this miscarrying womb. Slaying the beloved fruit. This is the opposite of the Abrahamic covenant. Where to Abraham, those three Ps, I will bless you with posterity like the sands and the stars. And yet here, no. That root is dried up. There is no fruit this again. This is Malachi chopping off the family tree. No roots and branches. All, you're just a, a solitary stump. What are the other Ps? There's the the, pros, the the promise of priesthood, and yet what is Hosea describing here? It's apostasy. And the third P, the promised land. Oh, to gather them to a land of promise. No, they're being scattered from it because they are breaking the covenant that Abraham first made with God there is a reversal of its results and you're seeing it right before them. Verse 17, my God will cast them away because they did not hearken unto him and they shall be wanderers among the nations. That's what Abraham was before this whole thing started. Leaving, wandering from Ur to Haran down to Israel, bound down to Egypt, back to Israel. Do you really want to go back to before this marriage ever began? Because that's what Israel is aiming for. Now, that's all part of the law of the harvest. Reaping what they sowed. And chapter 10 of Hosea is more of the same. He says in verse 1, Israel is an empty vine. Compare that to the grapes in the wilderness in the previous chapter. That would have given them so much hope. But nope, an empty vine now. He bringeth forth fruit unto himself. How's that for selfishness and self-serving? He's not blessing the world as God first intended when he called Abraham. Nope, just fruit for himself. According to the multitude of his fruit, he hath increased the altars. According to the goodness of his land, they have made goodly images. They keep crediting false gods for their prosperity. And as a result, they keep increasing their idolatry. That's not how it's supposed to work. He says in verse 4, They have spoken words, swearing falsely in making a covenant. Thus judgment springeth up as hemlock in the furrows of the field. Now that's even worse than the empty vine or the sour grapes. Now it's growing hemlock. That's a poisonous weed. And yet it's springing up everywhere. And yes, you reap what you sow. What happens when you plant poison? It comes back to bite you. And that's what's happening to ancient Israel. In verse 5 and 6, The inhabitants of Samaria shall fear because of the calves of beth Again, that's that golden calf at Bethel. But it's said in a more sarcastic or mocking kind of way. (laughs) That was calves of Beth-Avon. For the people thereof shall mourn over it, and the priests thereof that rejoiced on it for the glory thereof, because it is departed from it. It shall be also carried unto Assyria for a present to King Jerob. Ephraim shall receive shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his own counsel. You wanted those false gods to bring you glory? Sorry, they're only going to bring you shame. You wanted to follow those false gods? Well, guess where they're going? Back to Assyria. And yes, you'll be scattered there as well. In verse 7 and 8, As for Samaria, her king is cut off as the foam upon the water. Talk about fleeting. Like bubbles on the wave that quickly disappear. This is just like that dew in the morning or that morning cloud. No enduring obedience. It's gone. The high places also of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. The thorn and the thistle shall come up on their altars. They shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Thorns and thistles, back to the curse, post-fall. Mountains and hills fall on us? That was Alma's hope before he repented. I don't want to be seen by God's all-seeing eye. What mountain can I climb beneath? No, it's the mountain of the Lord he wants us to ascend above. Come home, just change. Verse 11, And Ephraim is as an heifer that is taught, and loveth to tread out the corn. And who wouldn't love to tread out the corn if you're a beast of burden? Because there's no burden. That's the cush life if you're a heifer. What he's describing there is really fascinating. Again, Hosea is so gifted when it comes to these analogies. And he's describing Israel as a beast of burden with no burden to bear. Uh, you're just out there on the threshing floor and you're just supposed to walk around. There's no plow to, to pull, there's no cart behind you, there's no yoke on your shoulders, actually. And according to scripture, you're not even supposed to muzzle the ox that's trampling it. That way, it can even eat while it's doing it. This is, this is the good life. And that's kind of what Ephraim or Israel up north has been trying to do. It loves to tread out the corn. It wants this life of ease. But what happens? But I passed over upon her fair neck. This fair neck has never had to bear the yoke. It's always been taken care of. I will make Ephraim to ride. Judah shall plow. Jacob shall break his clods. Oh, it's finally put to the plow. You are now a beast of burden. And worst of all, you are working under the Assyrian whip. There's a heavy yoke. Your neck will not be quite so fair. And it's no longer the the threshing floor that you're just walking around. You're going to get threshed yourself. He then says in verse 12 and 13, on on the heels of this idea of plowing and breaking up the clods of dirt, he says, sow to yourselves in righteousness and reap in mercy. How's that for Jezreel? How about, how about that for the law of the harvest? Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. Ye have plowed wickedness, ye have reaped iniquity, ye have eaten the fruit of lies, because thou didst trust in thy way and the multitude of thy mighty men. It's amazing how much Jezreel pops up in this, in this book. But the law of the harvest can help you as much as it can hurt you. If you're sowing the wind, then yes, you'll reap the whirlwind. If you're sowing wickedness, then yes, you'll eat a harvest of lies. But on the other hand, if the choice is totally ours, if we will sow to ourselves in righteousness, then mercy will be the fruit. It will be our reward. That's the promise. Followed by chapter 11, which is full of similar promises, because God refuses to give up on us. As we approach the end of Hosea, it's beautiful what he's saying here. We've had a lot of chapters of warning, caution, of call to repentance, uh, that it's going to be worse on you than it's ever been because Assyria is right on its way. But then there's this pivot as Hosea holds out hope to Gomer and to all of us. To any low Ami, you can be Ami. To any low Ruhama, God is offering His Ruhama, and you can change. So, verse 1: When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. This is the male version of what Ezekiel was talking about, about this little girl that he helped raise. Well, here's this son brought out of Egypt. Matthew, uh, the apostle, is actually going to use this verse when he talks about Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus going down into Egypt to avoid the massacre of the innocents in Bethlehem, and then to be brought back. I love that Matthew, as he's studying Hosea, says, huh, that sounds familiar. Is this fulfilled prophecy? Well, either way, is it Christ coming out of Egypt? Is it ancient Israel coming out of Egypt in the Exodus? Either way, it is a father trying to preserve his son. In verse 2, as they called them, so they went from them. Other translations say, the more the prophets called them, the more the people turned away. And that does describe the murmuring under the days of Moses. They sacrificed unto Balaam and burned incense to graven images. There's the idolatry that characterized Israel through so much of its history. Verse 3 and 4, I taught Ephraim also to go, taking them by their arms. How's that for a loving image? But they knew not that I healed them. I drew them with cords of a man, with bands of love. And I was to them as they that take off the yoke on their jaws, and I laid meat unto them. We just saw a metaphor of having the yoke finally placed upon the animal. Well, here a yoke is tenderly removed from the animal so that their jaws are not so restricted. Food is placed right before them. This is a kind master. In fact, it's a loving husband. What he's describing here, if you'll just return, our problem is we don't even recognize the source of that help. That's what he said there. I've, I'm drawing you with bands of love, but you don't even know that it's me that's healing you. When my oldest son was really little, he, he was oh, a little stubborn and independent. And... I remember we were at a store once, and he was super small. He couldn't even reach the door handle, but he was pushing his way out, and it was a heavy door. And his hands were up against the glass, and he's just, Ugh! and I'm like, oh, let me help you, son. And he's like, no, I can do it myself. I'm like, okay, that's fine. And man, he was using every muscle in that little body of his, and the door wasn't budging at all, but he did not want any help. And so, without him seeing, I reached over him and gave a nudge to the door handle, and it opened it just enough and gave it just enough momentum that then my son could open it the rest of the way. And once he got it there, he turned back at me with this scowl and just said, see, Dad, I can do it myself. And I smiled and said, yep, good job. It's interesting to see how much God does for us as we scowl at him and say, see, I can do it by myself. I hope we can grow up a little bit better and recognize the bands of love and the outstretched arms of mercy that are coming to us from our Father. He goes on and describes their, more of their wickedness, tells them that because of that iniquity, they're going to be brought back into bondage. It's like, were you freed from Egypt just to be brought into captivity to the Assyrians? Come on, there's, there's better ways to live. And God is devastated by all of this. He says it in verse 8 and 9. Powerful words. How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? How shall I make thee as Adma? How shall I set thee as Zeboim? And Adma and Zeboim were cities of the plain associated with Sodom and Gomorrah. He could have said, how can I abandon you? How can I leave you? How can I see this destruction happen to Sodom and Gomorrah? The fact he uses similar cities but that are so less well-known, is to me powerful. that as if God were saying, I know every single one of you, even the ones that nobody else remembers. And how can I, how can I leave you to your own devices? How? This is God absolutely devastated to see what is coming because of the people's wickedness. He says, My heart is turned within me. My repentings are kindled together. The Joseph Smith translation of that. Mine heart is turned toward thee, and my mercies are extended to gather thee. And because of that compassion, that love, that ruhama, he says, I will not execute the fierceness of mine anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in the midst of thee. I will not enter into the city. Now what's amazing about that passage? That's one worth marking and holding on to. Hosea 11 verse 8 and 9 some scholars have even suggested that this might be the most profound passage on mercy in all the Old Testament and it's like really that one what am I missing well what they notice is so often God's promises of redemption and of mercy come in response to repentance and we've seen that here in Hosea as well obviously Or they'll say, a lot of times God forgives the people because the prophet comes to intercede. We saw that with Moses. We've seen that with others. It's like, no, don't wipe them out. Let's just give them another chance. But what's amazing about this passage is it's not in response to repentance because they're not repenting. And it's not in response to a prophet interceding because that's not what Hosea is asking for right here. He's Describing their wickedness and destruction is imminent and and it's going to come because you're not going to change. And unsolicited, God initiates this part of the conversation with nothing but mercy. It's almost like he's talking to himself and he knows what justice demands. And he knows that mercy can't rob justice, but can't it soften justice's blow? Because how can I give up my people? How can I deliver my chosen to their enemies? Yes, the Assyrians will come and they will be the rod of my anger. But I will preserve my people. A remnant shall remain. A remnant shall return. Most will at least survive their scattered state. And I will remember where I hid every single Easter egg. And I will send fishers and hunters to the mountains and the hills and the holes of every rock to be able to coax them back out into covenant. This is such a profound passage. My heart is turned within me. My repentings, better word, my my compassion, my pity is kindled. All those metaphors about fire, that's not the only thing that's burning. My heart is burning with compassion and mercy for my people. And I will not, I won't let them be completely destroyed. Such a profound passage. This is unmerited mercy. Which seems almost an unavoidable outgrowth of the heart of God. He loves us. And nothing we do can change that. Verse 10 and 11, he then says, They shall walk after the Lord. He shall roar like a lion. When he shall roar, then the children shall tremble from the west. They shall tremble as a bird out of Egypt and as a dove out of the land of Assyria. And I will place them in their houses, saith the Lord. I'm going to gather them from the lands of their captivity, from Egypt, from Assyria, from wherever they go. I will bring them back home, place them in their houses. That's the promise. And then verse 12, Ephraim compasseth me about with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah yet ruleth with God and is faithful with his saints. There's still some hope here. Israel has passed the point of no return, but Judah... There's, there's still a righteous remnant there. And sure enough, Judah will outlive Israel as a result. Now chapter 12 then follows with more promise and more hope and more mercy. We're going back and forth. We saw such merciful passage. And then how ah, but Israel is still going compassing themselves about with lies. Ah, but Judah, there's still hope down there. And I'm still working with my people. You are still my people. So hold on to that. Chapter 12, verse 1, Ephraim feedeth on wind and followeth after the east wind. Great metaphors here too. You're eating wind, people. You're eating air. This is no substance. This is fried froth. This is. It will leave you empty and hungry and thirsty just as you were before. In fact, the east wind, that's, where, that's desert as far as Israel's concerned. So this is the, the blisteringly hot east wind that makes all the plants wither and die. That's what you're eating. That's what you're following. He daily increaseth lies and desolation. And they do make a covenant with the Assyrians. And oil is carried into Egypt. Please, people, stop trusting in the arm of flesh. It will get you nowhere Hope is not found in Egypt. Hope is not found in Assyria. Hope is found behind the door of hope. And who's behind it? God. Trust him. In verse 2 through 4, the Lord hath also a controversy with Judah. So I've got a, a bone to pick with you down south there too. I will punish Jacob according to his ways. According to his doings will he recompense him. More law of the harvest there. He took his brother by the heel in the womb. That's Jacob with Esau. He's really rewinding the clock. This is where it all began. By his strength he had power with God. Yea, he had power over the angel and prevailed. There's Jacob wrestling the angel at Jacob's ladder at Bethel. A site of covenant which has been turned into a place of idolatry. He wept and made supplication unto him. He found him in Bethel and there he spake with us. What's God trying to return them to? The good old days. When this all began... Someone who wanted God to prevail in his life. You can go back to those days. We can start this thing over. He says in verse 6, therefore turn thou to thy God, keep mercy and judgment, and wait on thy God continually. Let's get back to that initial covenant relationship. Unfortunately, verse 7 and 8, he, speaking of Israel, is a merchant. But the balances of deceit are in his hand. He loveth to oppress. And Ephraim said, yet I am become rich. I have found me out substance. In all my labors they shall find none iniquity in me that were sin. Talk about feigning innocence for their ill-gotten gains. Talk about serving mammon instead of serving God. You almost get a sense there that, I mean, yes, the balances of deceit are in my hand. And I love to oppress, but hey, it's made me wealthy. And isn't prosperity the sign of, of success? Isn't, uh, isn't it part of the Abrahamic covenant? And hey, I'm prospering, so I must be living in my part. Oh no, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Be careful. Don't. This is the opposite of what Job's problem and his people's problem were, of sin equals suffering, when that's not always the case. It sometimes is, but not always, at least not always in this life. Next life, yeah, that'll that'll come true every time. But the opposite, if sin equals suffering, then isn't prosperity, well doesn't righteousness bring prosperity, or vice versa, isn't prosperity evidence that you've been righteous? I think sometimes we fall into that in our own day with some kind of prosperity gospel mentality. And if I can look successful temporally, people will ex- assume I'm living successfully spiritually. and And that's a problem, because that's not the case here. This is deceit, this is oppression, this is temporal wealth without spiritual substance. But then notice what God says in 9 and 10. Again, mercy just a verse away. I that am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt will yet make thee to dwell in tabernacles. I'll still give you a place to stay, to live, to dwell with me. As in the days of the solemn feast, it's like the feast of Passover, or the Feast of Tabernacles, the celebration of deliverance and guidance through the wilderness. Hope is not lost. That door is still open. Israel will be redeemed and come home. I've got a tabernacle for you. I have also spoken by the prophets and will continue to do so. I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. And he's doing just that with Hosea. Talk about using similitudes. Oh, yeah. And multiplying visions, Joel will talk about that in just a moment. But what he's doing, I I brought you out of Egypt when I sent Moses. I'll bring you out of Assyria as I send hunters, hunters and fishers. I will keep sending prophets and speaking to you by them. They will multiply visions. They will use similitudes. God's pulling out all the stops as he's trying to help his people change. And then 13 and 14 and by a prophet, the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. there's Moses. And by a prophet was he preserved. There's more Moses and Joshua and Samuel and Elijah and Elijah, and you name the list. Hosea's in there. God always serves his people, calls his people through his servants. But Ephraim provoked him to anger most bitterly, therefore shall he leave his blood upon him, and his reproach shall his Lord return unto him. Wow, bad news there. Despite all that God is doing, sending prophets, a multitude, a a cloud of witnesses, they're trying to blow that cloud away. But again, hope is not lost. God will keep working on us. We just need to accept his invitations to change. Otherwise, we'll get what we deserve. And that's the message of chapter 13. Verse 1, When Ephraim spake trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. But when he offended in Baal, he died. You see both sides of the pride cycle there? Humility lifts you up. When you came speaking, trembling, broken heart, contrite spirit, then you were exalted. But pride goeth before the fall. When you offend in Baal, you die spiritually. Pick which side, the upward or the downward you want to be a part of. Verse 2, now they sin more and more. It's just getting worse. They have made the molten images of their silver and idols according to their own understanding. All of it, the work of the craftsmen. They say of them, let the men that sacrifice kiss the calves. These golden calves that we've set up. Yes, bow before them, kiss them, give them your honor, your veneration, your reverence talk about misplaced priorities. In verse 3, therefore they shall be as the morning cloud and as the early dew that passeth away. We saw those metaphors before. Now he'll add two more. As the chaff that is driven with the whirlwind out of the floor and as the smoke out of the chimney. You see all of these things, all four of those analogies, they're things that are easily blown away. Just like Israel will be before Assyria, as smoke out of the chimney. Verse 4 through 6, Yet I am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt. Remember me? Remember all I've done for you? I'm good at getting people out of bondage, if you'll just turn. Thou shalt know no God but me, for there is no Savior beside me. Baal will not deliver you. I'm your only hope. So come. I did know thee in the wilderness, in the land of great drought, I was there for you the whole time, when, back when you had nothing. According to their pasture, so were they filled. They were filled. Their heart was exalted. Therefore have they forgotten me. You only relied on me in your days of want. But once I blessed you, you forgot me in your times of prosperity. Back to the pride cycle? Exactly. So, verse 7 and 8, Therefore I will be unto them as a lion. Still not scared enough for you? As a leopard, by the way, will I observe them. Still not scared enough? I will meet them as a bear that is bereaved of her whelps and will rend the call of their heart and there will I devour them like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. Whew, pick your, your wild animal and whichever one scares you into repentance, then run away from the consequences of your sin. Is it a roaring lion? Is it a devouring leopard? Is it a mama bear? I mean, that's what he says at the end. A bear bereaved of her whelps. If you've ever seen a mother go full mama bear on someone, that might be the scariest of them all. Uh, there's righteous indignation. There's protecting her cubs. And that's God. So please don't make God go full mama bear on you. Okay, Israel? Verse 9 through eleven: O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself which means you have no one to blame but yourself. But in me is thine help. You see, there's God still there to save, to forgive, to to redeem. I will be thy king. Where is any other that may save thee in all thy cities? And thy judges of whom thou sayest, give me a king and princes. I gave thee a king in mine anger and took him away in my wrath. I wonder if he's referring to King Saul there. You wanted a king. It was the wrong idea, but I gave it to you. I gave you the best I could, and yet he, that led to a downfall. Same with David, same with Solomon. I'm the only king in whom you can trust. So turn to me and quit destroying yourself. I will be your king. Will you be my people? Or, or, or is it lo a still to this day? Verse 12, the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is hid. Now, that sounds pretty good. Okay, he's hidden his sin as he repented? No. Other translations make that more clear. The New International Version, the guilt of Ephraim is stored up. His sins are kept on record, which means we haven't repented. Because God still remembers them. He can't erase those sins. We haven't offered them up to him. In verse 13, the sorrows of a travailing woman shall come upon him. He is an unwise son, for he should not stay long in the place of the breaking forth of children. Now that's a really odd one. And it's a mixed metaphor because at one point you're the woman in travail. And then in the next breath, you're the child. In, as your mom's in labor, but you refuse to come out of the womb. That's what it's, it's. a weird verse, but that's what he's describing there. Where it will stay that the, he should not stay long in the place of the breaking forth of children. The breaking forth of children. There's labor and delivery. Here comes the baby, but this little baby just wants to stay. Okay, what, what's he mean by this? Again, like I said, mixed metaphor. If you're the mother here, you're feeling the pains of travail, and. And that's the agonies of Assyria on, on its way. Because you refuse to come and see the light of day, you'd rather hide there within what you think is the safety of the womb. You can't stay there forever, trust me. You have to come forth and expose yourself to the light of day and let God see your sins so he can redeem you. Fascinating. Again, Hosea has so many different symbols, metaphors, symbols that he's trying to get used to get across. Now he goes on bad news, what we've seen so far is always accompanied by good news. So look at verse 14 and 15. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. But still, in the meantime, because of their wickedness and their unwillingness to change, repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. Though he be fruitful among his brethren, an east wind, that's the destructive type, shall come. The wind of the Lord shall come up from the wilderness, and his spring shall become dry, and his fountain shall be dried up. He shall spoil the treasure of all pleasant vessels. Interesting that back and forth and back and forth, Hosea is swinging the pendulum between Wickedness and forgiveness. Because that's kind of what we do as we go round and round the pride cycle. And presuming upon his grace in those moments of forgiveness and swinging back to our wickedness until consequences come to, to shock us back into our senses. Which side are we going to finally end up on? I wish we could stick with the first half of that passage. When you're so full of faith in God that you can even talk smack to sin and death themselves. I love that. Oh, death, I'll be your plagues. Oh, grave, I'll be your destruction. It's what Abinadi said in talking smack. It's what Paul said in talking smack. Similar language where, oh, grave, where is thy victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? That takes a lot of courage to talk down the grim reaper. But that's the courage that comes through our covenants with Christ, the resurrection, the third day he will raise us up. But then the chapter ends, verse 16, because if we don't take God's offer of mercy, if we don't repent, what will happen? Samaria shall become desolate, for she hath rebelled against her God, They shall fall by the sword. Their infants shall be dashed in pieces and their women with child shall be ripped up. That is as horrific a prophecy as you'll find. Talk about a complete lack of mercy on a serious part because Israel wouldn't take God's offer of mercy on his part. Talk about not even just lack of mercy but lack of humanity what you're doing to children, to pregnant women. But what do you expect when you leave the source of all mercy behind? There's no mercy or humanity left. And so with that stark reality staring them in the face, when they get to the completeness, the gomer of their wickedness, if people won't change when invited to, no wonder this final chapter of Hosea chapter 14, is his final plea to repent. This is the husband seeking one last chance. Can I at least talk to Gomer? Just listen to me one more time before you finally just leave once and for all for good. This final message is such a beautiful one. He says in verse one and two, "O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God. Please, repent." Come home, honey. The children miss you. I miss you. It doesn't matter what you've done or what you've been doing. We can leave that all behind us. Just return to the Lord thy God. For thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Take with you words and turn to the Lord. I love that invitation. Take words. Take the Lord at his word. Bring with you the promise of his forgiveness. He'll honor it. If you're scared, bring your scriptures with you when you go talk to the bishop and say, Bishop, I see all these passages in scripture that talk about mercy. Are they true? And let your bishop reassure you that they all are. Come with words. And these words of reassurance are what invite you to come back to God. So take with you words. Turn to the Lord. Say unto him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously, so will we render the calves of our lips. That last phrase is hard to understand in the English Standard Version. And we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. In other words, we'll offer true sacrifices once again. And they won't just be the outward type. That will be an outward symbol of an inner reality. And those outward actions will show inward attributes. I'm changing I'm giving you a broken heart and a contrite spirit because your word said that's what you wanted. So please take away my iniquity. He will. In verse 3, once we admit that Asher shall not save us, that's Asher is Assyria, when we recognize that Assyria can't help because Assyria is the problem, not the solution. Once we say we will not ride upon horses, neither will we say any more to the work of our hands, ye are our gods. For in thee the fatherless findeth mercy. If we can just get to that point where we realize there's no flesh on our arms in which to trust, but the arm of God is ever out extended before us. In thee, the fatherless find mercy. The whole family's coming back together here. The fatherless, not my people, there's Lo Ami. They'll find mercy. Oh, there's Lo Ruhama. This is Hosea trying to keep his family intact, just as God is doing with us. Verse four through seven: I will heal their backsliding; I will love them freely, for mine anger is turned away from him. I will be as the dew unto Israel. You see, you were, you were the dew in the wrong way; just quickly evaporates. But I'll be the dew that even when you can't tell that there's there's that there's no you can tell there's no rain falling but somehow there's still life being granted and growth emerging. Well, there's the dew that comes from God. He shall grow as the lily and cast forth his roots as Lebanon. His branches shall spread, his beauty shall be as the olive tree and his smell as Lebanon. They that dwell under his shadow, you think in the shade, away from the beating sun, the harsh east wind, under the shadow of his wings, we could say. They that dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall revive as the corn and grow as the vine. The scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. How's that for the opposite of planting hemlock or withered grapes, fig, uh, fig trees that aren't bearing any fruit? Now God will come and bless you, redeem you, forgive you, Heal you. Just trust in that. And so verse 8 and 9, the book of Hosea comes to its close. Ephraim shall say, what have I to do anymore with idols? (laughs) Can you picture that? We finally came to our senses. No more idolatry for me. We see it for what it is. And what am I? I don't want to have anything to do with that anymore. I have heard him and observed him. I am like a green fir tree. Think of that. Even beyond vines and, and figs, a fir tree. Of course it's a green fir tree. That's redundant. Firs are evergreen. And that's what God is trying to make us. He's evergreen, ever merciful, ever willing to, change, to, to bless us if we'll change. So he says, From me is thy fruit found, who is wise, And he shall understand these things prudent. And he shall know them for the ways of the Lord are right and the just shall walk in them. But the transgressors shall fall therein. Just one last note of warning. But rewind and see what the message of those final verses is. Once you realize who I am and who you've been, once you come to your senses and think, what on earth was I thinking going after those false idols? When I had the true God, what was I thinking being this wife of whoredoms when my husband was ever faithful to me? Why wander in the wilderness when I've got an evergreen here at home? My friends, we're all gomers here. We are the the wandering wife. But we have a choice before us as our ever-loving, ever-forgiving, ever-present husband is extending mercy and inviting us to come back home. When I was dating my wife and, man, I wanted to marry her, but she wasn't so sure yet. And it felt like I was thinking about her all the time and only rarely did it seem like there was evidence that she was returning the favor. That was an acquired taste, I suppose. Uh, all's well that ends well. But at the time, that was hard. And I remember one day I was doing the dishes. To me, that's a great place to think. And I was thinking about my situation and throwing myself a bit of a pity party. And I remember at one point, just kind of thinking to myself, why doesn't she love me the way I love her? And right on the heels of that thought, I felt the Spirit whisper, now you know how I feel. And that broke my heart in a way that it hadn't been broken before. I'm grateful to report that my wife eventually caught up to me as far as how much she loves me and how much I love her. I pray for the day where I can do the same and catch up to God and love him as much as he loves me. With a love that is so forgiving, so full of mercy, a Hosea, who never gives up on Gomer, who never says it's come to its completion. No, you can be my people, Ami. You can receive my mercy, Ruhama. I have planted those promises, Jezreel. And they will grow up with the fruits of forgiveness. That is the message of Hosea. One of the most merciful books you'll ever see in the Old Testament. That is what Hosea is all about. That is Hosea. That is Yeshua. That is Jesus. Now, it's hard to follow Hosea. But if I had to pick a prophet to do it, Joel is not a bad choice. The book of Joel with his three brief chapters, that's all we get from him. I wish we had more. We'll see him scattered elsewhere in scripture when Peter quotes him, for example, when the restoration fulfills some of his prophecies. The tricky part about the book of Joel is we don't know when it fits. Uh, Like I said, most of these so-called minor prophets are clustered around the destruction of the northern kingdom in Israel or the destruction of the southern kingdom of Judah. Are the Assyrians the enemy? Are the Babylonians the enemy? Let me know. Well, the hard part about the book of Joel is he never mentions the Assyrians or the Babylonians, and that would have been helpful to place him chronologically. Instead, he talks about enemies like Philistines and Phoenicians and Edomites and Egyptians, and so some scholars say, oh, it must be beforehand. Because those were some of Israel's earlier enemies. So some place Joel as the first of the minor prophets. But then again, he also mentions the Greeks. And they're the later ones. So some say, well, maybe he's the last of the minor prophets. Because the Greeks are an enemy by then, post-Persian period. Then some say, well, maybe some of it was written before and some of it was written after. And uh, it's just one big confusion. He's one of the minor prophets that's hardest to, to, to date But maybe that's a good thing. Because he seemed to care a whole lot more about our day than his day anyway. And so much of his writing is focused on the last days. We saw some of that in Hosea. That's the day when finally the family comes back together. Joel will do similar things. So as we turn to the book of Joel and see what he's writing, how please see his message directed to you very personally. He was a prophet with his eye on the last days. Chapter 1, verse 1 The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel Hear this, ye old men. Give ear, all ye inhabitants of the land. Hath this been in your days, or even in the days of your fathers? In other words, has anything like this ever happened before? Well, tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. The message I have to share are things that have never happened before and things that you will want to pass down generation to generation to generation. Does that sound like he's trying to get us prepared for these final days? These are words that need to be passed down. Verse 4, That which the palmer worm hath left hath the locust eaten. That which the locust hath left hath the canker worm eaten. That which the canker worm hath left hath the caterpillar eaten. Now, there's some disagreement here. Are, there, are these four different species of insect? Palmer worm to locust to canker worm to caterpillar. Or others say, yeah, King James translators, they should have known their locusts a little bit better. Maybe there are not many locusts up in London. Because these might simply be four different stages in the life cycle of a locust. Either way, what he's describing here is mass devastation. If, you're, if you know your early church history, think about the plague of grasshoppers in Salt Lake that were gobbling up everything and the seagulls had to come in to save the day. Well, there's no seagulls for this one. This is an absolute locust uh, infestation to the point that what one cycle or stage left behind is just gobbled up by the next or the next or the next until there's nothing left. This could fit in well in the days of the Assyrian destruction. It could fit in well in the days of the Babylonian destruction. Or the destruction by the Romans. Or the destruction at Armageddon and the end of the wicked world. That's why Joel is so applicable and relevant throughout history. But here's the message, if this is what is bearing down on you. Verse 5 through 7. Awake, ye drunkards, and weep, and howl, all ye drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation is come up upon my land strong without number, whose teeth are as the teeth of a lion, and he hath the cheek teeth of a great lion. He hath laid my vine waste, and barked my fig tree. He hath made it clean bare, and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. This is complete destruction. So forget the locusts. Were they literal? I don't know. doesn't matter. But there is a literal enemy on its way bearing down upon you and you better wake up you sleepers you better get sober you drunks because it's time to prepare in fact it's past time couldn't you hear the buzzing of the locusts off in the distance aren't these prophets trying to raise a warning voice are we changing and preparing verse 8 through 10 lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth The meat offering and the drink offering is cast off from the house of the Lord. The priests, the Lord's ministers, mourn. The field is wasted. The land mourneth, for the corn is wasted. The new wine is dried up. The oil languisheth. Connecting the temporal with the spiritual here, no wonder there's no offerings at the house of the Lord. The people have nothing to offer, there's nothing left. A meat offering? All the animals have died. A grain offering? It's all been eaten up by the locusts. Do we have anything to give God? Or has our wickedness consumed all of that till we have nothing left? If so, verse 11 through 12, be ye ashamed, O ye husbandmen. Howl, O ye vinedressers, for the wheat and for the barley, because the harvest of the field is perished, The vine is dried up and the fig tree languisheth. The pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree, even all the trees of the field are withered because joy is withered away from the sons of men. This is imagery of absolute devastation, of drought, of famine, of sorrow, of mourning. These are dark days that Joel is describing. Do they sometimes seem fitting? of the world that we live in in verse 13 gird yourselves and lament ye priests howl ye ministers of the altar come lie all night in sackcloth ye ministers of my God for the meat offering and the drink offering is withholden from the house of your God so much focus here in Joel on worship on offerings on the temple which again would point us to these last days Think as we get closer and closer to Armageddon and temples dot the earth as pinpoints of brilliant light that shine against a backdrop of devastating darkness. These are the last days that Joel is describing and trying to prepare us for. He says in verse 16 through 18, Is not the meat cut off before our eyes? Yea, joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed is rotten under their clods. The garners are laid desolate. The barns are broken down, for the corn is withered. How do the beasts groan? The herds of cattle are perplexed because they have no pasture. Yea, the flocks of sheep are made desolate. Now, I probably could have skipped a lot of this and just summarized it from the start, saying, Hey, there's this locust infestation. There's this destruction and devastation till there's nothing left. And that's pretty much what he'll say for the rest of chapter one. That's true. That's a good, quick way to summarize Joel chapter one. But to hear it, to read it verse after verse after verse with all the lamenting and all the howling, all the shame, all the de- devastation and destruction it starts to weigh on you by the time you get to the end of this chapter. You start wondering, is there any hope ahead? Any better days or is, have we passed the point of no return? Are we staring down the barrel of Armageddon? And this is the end. Well, if so, look at the end of this chapter, verse 19 and 20. O Lord, to thee will I cry. That's the solution. That's our only hope. For the fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame hath burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field cry also unto thee, for the rivers of waters are dried up. The fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness. These are the fires of consequence, and they are burning everything in their path. If only there were rivers of water, rivers of living water, to put out these fires, to quench their thirst. Think about Ezekiel's vision of a river of living water flowing out from beneath the temple. Think about John the Apostle's visions at the end of the book of Revelation, where rivers of water flow out from the tree of life. That's what we're hoping for. It's what we're waiting for. It's what we're preparing for as we're digging wells and praying for living water to spring up within us unto everlasting life. That is our only hope in these last days. And those are the days that Joel describes even more graphically in chapter two. Verse one and two, he says, blow ye the trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Picture those ram horns and, and there they are. If the trumpet gives an uncertain sound, Paul says, who will rally for the, va- for the battle? Well, this is a clear sound. The trumpet in Zion is sounding an alarm from the holy mountain of the Lord. Watchmen on the tower, looking out, seeing afar off, the enemy gathering and coming. What are they saying to help us prepare? He says, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand, a day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness as the morning spread upon the mountains a great people and a strong, there hath not been ever the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. Perfect description of the last days. These days of trouble and gloom. General darkness in need of pinpoints of brilliant light shining from the tops of these mountains of the Lord. This is the prophet, the watchman on the tower trying to rally the troops. And it's been amazing, even these last few years, to hear President Nelson as the Lord's watchman blowing a trumpet in Zion, sounding an alarm from the Holy Mountain. How's this for a quick review? April of 2018, his first general conference. In fact, even before that, he's sounding an alarm to stay on the covenant path. He invites us to increase our capacity to receive revelation, to minister to the one He asks the youth to join the Lord's battalion to gather scattered Israel. Six months later, the trumpet sounds again, October of 2018. Create a home-centered church. Gather Israel on both sides of the veil. Fully take upon yourself the name of Christ, both individually and institutionally. Six months later, April 2019, he blows the trumpet in Zion again. Embrace a life of repentance. Focus on the covenants of the temple. How's that for an alarm from the holy mountain? Six months later, October 2019, access the power of God in your life. Seek the treasures to be found only in the temple. Serve all those around you in need. Six months later, April 2020, put faith in Christ into action and hear Him. Two-word trumpet blast that has been echoing ever since. October of 2020, never stop preparing. Let God prevail in your life. April 21, remove the spiritual debris from your life. Have faith to move mountains. October 21, strengthen your spiritual foundation. Make time for the Lord. April 2022, build your spiritual momentum. You'll need it to push your way through the last days. And then October 2022, overcome the world. Come out, ye that be clean, ye that bear the vessels of the Lord. What an alarm from God's holy mountain. What a trumpet from Zion. Do we sense the timetable? Do we understand what we're up against? And are we willing to live worthily and righteously in the last days? In verse 3, Joel says, "A A fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. Oh, we're surrounded here. The land is as the garden of Eden before them and behind them a desolate wilderness. Yea, and nothing shall escape them. We're going from Eden to Armageddon. We're going from abundance to barrenness. From peace to war, from love to hate. It was, it was Eden before. And then this marching host. These That's why locusts are such a great metaphor for it. Because they're just, I mean, it's one of the plagues of Egypt. They're going to consume everything in their way. What looked like Eden ahead of us, as we then march through it, looking for whatever scattered kernels might remain, it's Armageddon in the rearview mirror. How will we live? In verse 4 through 6, the appearance of them is as the appearance of horses and as horsemen. So shall they run. Like the noise of chariots on the tops of mountains shall they leap. Like the noise of a flame of fire that devoureth the stubble. As a strong people set in battle array. Before their face the people shall be much pained. All faces shall gather blackness. Have you seen Lord of the Rings? Or even better, read it? These massive battles. Oh, the siege of Helm's Deep. The final battle the city of the king and to see the the armies of the orcs spread off as far as the eye can see oh yeah, I think my face would gather blackness I think I would look pained and afraid what are we to do against such odds how do we raise righteous children in a day of darkness how do we shine as lights in the world how do we navigate Exile in Babylon. In verse 7 through 9, they shall run like mighty men. This is charging like fearless warriors. They shall climb the wall like men of war. So even your walls can't keep them out. They shall march every one on his ways, and they shall not break their ranks. Talk about order. Neither shall one thrust another. They shall walk every one in his path, and when they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. I mean, Picture this army never breaking ranks. And even as they're coming to, to rush upon our fortifications, they don't break the battle lines. In fact, they don't even get wounded. Is there anything we can do? He goes on, They shall run to and fro in the city. They shall run upon the wall. They shall climb up upon the houses. They shall enter in at the windows like a thief. There is no stopping them. Again, there's the locust imagery. Have you ever seen... film or footage of a flock of birds or of bats or of insects that are just swarming and moving and it's amazing because they don't like run into each other. They don't like fly and, and hit and then fall to the ground. It's this whole moving swarm and that's the army that's being described here. The army that we're up against. Like we talked about in the book of Daniel that There's not a part of your life that Babylon doesn't want to control. So it brings its generals and its captains and its rulers but also brings its treasurers and its judges and and everything else. And here, I'm not trying to scare us but maybe I am. Maybe Joel is. Maybe he's trying to paint a picture that's bleak enough, dark enough that we will beg for the light of the world. That we'll realize as Elder Maxwell has said, that this is a real war with real casualties, spiritually speaking. Or as Elder Holland has said, if we, are Christ- if we are casual Christians, then we will end up being Christian casualties. That's stark language. Last days, yes. Joel is trying to prepare us for them. Please take this seriously. Verse 10 and 11, the earth shall quake before them. The heavens shall tremble, the sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. Do those phrases sound familiar? These are the signs of the times, and we're in those times. But the Lord shall utter his voice before his army. So it's not just the orcs out there. The the Lord has an army of his own. For his camp is very great, and we're a part of it. He is strong that executeth his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? That's the question. That is the question of the last days. In fact, that's John's question in the book of Revelation. Chapter 6 of Revelation is incredible because he marches you through all these dispensations before the final one. You go uh, galloping forward with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You kneel at the altar of martyrs, that symbolizes the fifth seal. See, the first four horsemen, first thousand years, second, third, fourth, the fifth is the martyrs, the fifth thousand years. The sixth thousand years, the one that comes right before the millennium, the coming of Christ, how is it embodied? How is it symbolized? Because each thousand year period, each millennium gets its own symbol. Four of them are different colored horses. The fifth is an altar. What's the sixth? This is a little less clear, but if you read what John describes, the one overarching symbol for this thousand-year period preceding the coming of Christ is earthquakes. It's the shaking of the earth. It's the shaking of faith. It's earthquakes in diverse places. It's even mountains and islands fleeing and moving out of their places. Those were places of safety kings would build their, their castles on the mountaintop or they would dig a moat around it to turn it into an island those are the places of security well where do I go for safety if even the places of security are looking for security and running away where can I stand firm if the world around me all seems to be shaking I felt strongly about naming this channel unshaken when we first started it two years ago because i pray we can make it through our days of shaking and be able to stand the way joel ends this question or ends this verse who can abide it is the way john ends revelation chapter 6 who shall be able to stand that is the question the answers start coming in verse 12 therefore also now saith the lord turn ye even to me with all your heart and turn is repentance. So please repent with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God. That's real repentance. That's broken heart and contrite spirit. That's inward and not just outward. It's too easy to tear your clothing. No, you need to tear your heart. Do it on the inside. Internal sackcloth and ashes. How's that for real repentance? And what would cause us to do that? What would give us the confidence to do that? Nothing but a knowledge of God. And so Joel goes on. For he, God, is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. The JST, he will turn away the evil from you. Therefore, repent. And who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him? And then Joseph adds, that ye may offer even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. He'll finally have something to give him again. What I love about those verses, 12 through 14, we know what we're up against. We saw a whole chapter about it. And the the locusts are bearing down upon us. But if we turn to God with all our heart if we rend our heart and not just our garments and give him that broken heart and contrite spirit, then we'll be preserved. We're his people, after all. He will carry us through. We're his army, and this is a general that refuses to lose the battle. We just have to know that about him. Because what's keeping me from repenting? Falling prey to those misperceptions that God is angry and mean and vengeful? No, we read Hosea. We just did. Okay, Here in Joel, if we know his mercy and his grace, his kindness, the desire that he has to leave a blessing behind him, what what do the locusts leave behind? Armageddon. What does God leave behind? A return to Eden. He'll reverse the whole thing. That's the promise. That's faith unto repentance, as the Book of Mormon calls it. Because if I have faith in those attributes of God, then of course I'm encouraged. I'm reassured. I'm invited. I can come to Him. He will let me. We then read in verse 15 through 17 some more trumpet blasts, another alarm sounding. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children. You get a sense here? These kind of bark, he's barking out these orders with very simple commands. Fast, gather, solemn assembly, sanctify, assemble, get together on this. Let the bridegroom go forth out of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. It's marriage time. The ten virgins, how many of you are ready? Bride and, and groom, Christ and Church. Jehovah and Israel coming together. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? It sounds like Moses pleading with the Lord back in the wilderness of Sinai. Please, God, forgive them, give them another chance. Don't destroy them out here, or what will the people think? What will the surrounding nations think about thee and thy people? Joel is making similar intercession. And to understand these trumpet blasts, these alarms, just asking us to prepare and to repent and get the earth ready for the second coming of Christ. The wedding feast is about to begin. He then says in verse 18 through 20, Then will the Lord be jealous for his land, and pity his people. Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and ye shall be satisfied therewith. I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen, but I will remove far off from you the northern army, and will drive him into a land barren and desolate with his face toward the east sea and his hinder part toward the utmost sea, and his stink shall come up, and his ill savor shall come up, because he hath done great things. (laughs) The Lord will finally defeat his enemies and deliver his people. That northern army, that's where the Assyrians will come from, that's where the Babylonians will come from, that's where the Greeks will come from, and the Romans will come from. Okay, the wicked world is bearing down upon us, but the Lord will remove them far off And to feel protected from the wicked world. To feel safe within the sanctuary of standards. To enter the house of the Lord with its thick walls that keep the world out. Oh, those are places of safety. Places of security. He says in verse 21 through 24, Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. He's doing them already as we speak. Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring, for the tree beareth her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad then, ye children of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, the latter rain in the first month. It's going to come. It's going to be okay. The floors shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. That is the opposite of everything he just described before. About all that desolation. uh, With with fire spreading in every direction, and the armies out there trampling everything down, and the locusts spreading until there's nothing left. And yet now, the rain has returned. And with it, blossom and bud... With it, corn and oil and wine. This is a land flowing with milk and honey all over again. God has reversed. The war is over. And peace can return. He says in verse 25, I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten. The canker worm, the caterpillar, the palmer worm, the whole thing. I'll reverse the entire devastation. I will restore those years, those lost years. My great army which I sent among you, and ye shall eat in plenty, and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, that hath dealt wondrously with you. My people shall never be ashamed, and ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. What a promise! Everything lost will be found. The fall will be reversed. The apostasy will end in a glorious restoration. Death swallowed up in victory. Not a locust left. These are such powerful promises. And how does it come about? Notice verse 28 and 29. It shall come to pass afterward. So at some future day, these latter days, That I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids. In those days will I pour out my spirit. Those days, those latter days, my spirit poured out on all flesh, old and young, there's the young men and the old men, male and female, there's the sons and daughters. High and low. Low, there's the servants and handmaids. It's not just one type of person. It's everyone. This is the knowledge of the, of the Lord covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. This is every knee bowing and every tongue confessing. This is no more need to teach your neighbor, thus saith the Lord, because everyone knows the Lord. Can you imagine getting to a point where missionary work is no longer necessary? Because everyone already knows? We're not at that point yet. <laughs> not by a long shot, but that's the goal. And how do we get there? By living worthy of the Holy Ghost. There's that fascinating passage in section 11 of the Doctrine and Covenants that says, And if, if you desire, you'll have my spirit and my word. The convincing of The power of God unto the convincing of men. If you desire, who wouldn't desire that? Well, sadly, by our actions, sometimes we show that we don't desire the Spirit to be with us. But if we can live in such a way where God can pour out His Spirit upon us and upon all flesh, then of course we win the war. Of course darkness is eclipsed by a flood of light Because we're all following the light of the world. Every son, every daughter prophesying. Which is more than just, well just, it's not a just. More than predicting the future. That is a subtopic in the gift of prophecy. The book of Revelation describes the gift of prophecy as the testimony of Jesus. Imagine if every son and daughter had the testimony of Christ. Old timers are dreaming dreams. The youth are seeing visions. That's a literal fulfillment in Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith Sr., an old man dreaming dreams. Joseph Smith Jr., a young man having visions. Sons and daughters prophesying. A young woman in Italy, Madeline Cardin, who has a dream of messengers coming, sent from the Lord to her little alpine village and bringing the fullness of the gospel. And so it happened. A decade or so later as Lorenzo Snow and his companions climbed the Alps and found the Waldensians. That's how my family joined the church. It all began with the Spirit being sent upon the old and the young, on men and women, boys and girls, sons and daughters. That's how the work will continue to go forth until verse 30 through 32 the final day comes when I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. That is such an important prophecy. That is the end times. That is the last days. Those are the signs of the times. Blood, fire, smoke, darkness, a great and dreadful, great and terrible day. But safety where? In Mount Zion? Deliverance where? In Jerusalem, new or old? That's the remnant that the Lord is calling and that remnant is returning to the covenant of Christ. That is God sending out his word and his sheep hearing the voice of the good shepherd. That is gathering Israel on this side of the veil, even as we do it on the, on the other side of the veil as well. That, this is what we're doing. This is the day that we're living in. Back in October of 2001, we heard a trumpet blast uh, from the mountain of the Lord when Gordon B. Hinckley, stood up in general conference. One month after 9-11, that same conference, he turned around and was handed a slip of paper and, and then read to the audience, the congregation there in the conference center, that the bombing had just begun as the war in Iraq had be, was beginning. It was an intense time, as you all remember, who were old enough. But in his talk... President Hinckley said, as he's describing the war in heaven that has been transferred to a war on earth, and as wars and rumors of wars, I've never heard a better description of terrorism than that. As that was spreading, as darkness and destruction, it was an intense time. It felt like the last days. Still does. But in that context, President Hinckley stood up and said, the vision of Joel has been fulfilled. Wherein he declared, and then he quoted the end of Joel 2, like we just did about the Spirit being poured out on sons and daughters, about darkness and devastation and blood and fire and smoke, but about Mount Zion and about Jerusalem. And which side will we be on? Will we be the righteous remnant? I remember some friends at the time thinking, Whoa, did you hear President Hinckley? He just called it out. He checked off the box on Joel chapter 2. So, I mean, is the second coming any day now? And I remember thinking, well, yes and no. No man knows the day nor the hour, but there are signs of the times that are being fulfilled. And I'm a prover of contraries, so I want to be prepared, but I don't want to be overzealous. I want to be prepared and patient all at the same time. Uh, I want a slow and steady spirituality rather than a fanatical faith. And so I pointed out that, yes, President Hinckley checked that box, but there's a lot of boxes because Peter checked that box too. Way back in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit of God was poured out upon the people at the day of Pentecost, then Peter said, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he quoted Joel chapter 2, verse 28 through 32. I mentioned the layer cake idea with Isaiah. Isaiah that he would make a prophecy that was fulfilled in his day and in Christ's day and in the last day. Well, Joel was a pretty good baker too. And so consider that Joel's layer cake and it will have multiple fulfillments stacked one on top of the other. Yes, in Peter's day. Yes, in President Hinckley's day. But does that mean it's all said and done? Or is there yet some blood and fire and smoke to come? Or more importantly, more visions, more dreams, more prophecy, more spirit being poured poured out upon every son and daughter of God with an open heart to receive it. Those are the last days. Those are the best days. That's the great to push back against the the, the terrible. And I pray to be a part of it. In fact, we are invited all to be a part of it, and that's where chapter 3 comes in. As much as I love the end of Joel chapter 2, with that incredible prophecy, Joel 3 has some of my favorite phrases in all of Scripture. He begins in verse 1 and 2 with a look to the last days. For behold, in those days, the latter ones, and in that time, the end time, When I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat and will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. Now, part of that passage probably makes sense. Bringing again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. Oh, well, that's a gathering of Israel. Gathering all nations. Oh, that's beyond Israel. But remember, gathering Israel is only the first step. He only chooses a chosen people so that then they go out and choose everyone else to be chosen as well. So we're gathering Israel. And then non-Israel is going Jew to Gentile. And you understand all of this is happening. But then the end of it, where is he going to bring us? To the valley of Jehoshaphat. And there he's going to plead In fact, there he's going to judge because that's what Jehoshaphat means. Jehoshaphat means God judges. And so think about the gathering at the end times and then God passing judgment upon the people as he separates wheat from tares and sheep from goats, right hand from left hand. What's interesting though also about the valley of Jehoshaphat, he was the king of Judah back in the days of Elijah and Elisha. Elijah and Elisha were preaching in the north. We don't really have any record of big name prophets in the south. Well, good thing we had a big name king that unfortunately we don't remember often enough. Jehoshaphat, especially if we skip Chronicles and only study 1 and 2 Kings, then we really miss out on Jehoshaphat. Because, I mean, you might want to go back and re listen to those, uh, those episodes. Because in 2 Chronicles 17 through 20, You get four whole chapters where you really see the reign of Jehoshaphat unfold. And he's incredible. Not perfect. He was a little too trusting of Ahab up north. But he was incredibly trusting of God. And that was the good news. That's the strength side of that other weakness. But in that trust, when enemies are around them and, and there's an alliance coming down against Judah, King Jehoshaphat declares a fast. He invites the people to pray. He gathers them to the temple. Does this sound like some of the trumpet blasts we've been hearing in the book of Joel? Gather a solemn assembly, sound the trumpet from the mountain of Israel. Jehoshaphat is, the, is just the guy to do that. And he gathers them. Well, The Lord takes care of the battle, as he always does. And in victory, Jehoshaphat then gathers his people together into a valley that he calls the Valley of Berechah. And Beracha means blessing or blessedness. So when we think of the Valley of Jehoshaphat, it's got all kinds of identities. One, it's a Valley of Judgment, because God is going to judge the enemies of Israel and defeat them. He's going to judge the people of God and preserve them. He's going to grant them a blessing. So this Valley of Judgment is also a Valley of Blessing and Blessedness. And that's where this gathering in the final day is going to be. And again, think more metaphorically rather than just one solitary valley out there somewhere, okay? Hold on to the idea of a valley as we keep reading, moving forward. Verse 3, they have cast lots for my people and have given a boy for an harlot and sold a girl for wine that they might drink. Now talk about dehumanization and even commodification. This is the wicked side of things. They're just... Casting lots. They're gambling over other people. Uh, for a, a harlot, they're giving a boy? This is, this is shocking. They're trying to satisfy the lust of the flesh. And how do I pay off the prostitute? Well, take this, this boy. Or how do I pay off my debt at the, at the bar? What does the bartender want? We'll take this girl. Sell the girl for wine. So Give the boy for the harlot. Cast lots for my people. This is a scary time. This is Babylon that we find ourselves surrounded by, where people have been dehumanized and commodified in our preference for commercialism and consumerism. And people don't matter, but how do I get stuff? Now keep reading, verse 7 and 8. Despite all that, behold, I will raise them out of the place whither ye have sold them and will return your recompense upon your own head. How's that for passing judgment upon them? I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hands of the children of Judah, and they shall sell them to the Sabaeans, to a people far off, for the Lord hath spoken it. That last line can be a little confusing unless you caught the, the shift that he's no longer talking about his people. He's talking about the enemies of his people. I'm gathering my people away from the enemy. And then what has that left you enemy to do? To have your sons and your daughters sold off. There's the role reversal. There's the poetic justice as God passes judgment in the valley of Jehoshaphat, Jehovah Judges. This is, you scattered my people. Well, you'll know what it feels like. This is back to that enforced empathy we see running throughout the Old Testament. You'll know what it's like to be scattered because you scatterers will become the scattered yourselves. As I gather my people home. So, verse 9 through 11 Proclaim ye this among the Gentiles Prepare war, wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near, let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble yourselves and come, all ye heathen, and gather yourselves together round about. Thither cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Now, this is intense, because this is a reversal of Isaiah chapter 2. Remember the promise in Isaiah 2 was millennial peace. And so you take your sword and you beat it into a plowshare. I don't need this to fight an enemy. I can just use this as my plow to break up the clods of dirt in the ground. My, prune, my spear, I don't, I'm not going to throw it at anybody, but it's on a long pole and it's sharpening. And that would make a good pruning hook as I'm just pruning the trees and the, the high branches. The weapons of war are now becoming implements of agriculture So I can feed people instead of fight them. That's a beautiful prophecy. This is the opposite. It's a scary one. You're going to need every sword you can get your hand on. So go take your your plowshare and somehow turn it into a weapon instead. Take your pruning hook and that'll become a pretty good spear. Now he's speaking to the Gentiles. Prepare for war. Wake up your mighty men. If it's a fight you want, it's a fight you'll get. But the Lord will preserve and protect his people and cover them in the armor of God. This will be a righteous remnant ready to follow the Lord of hosts into battle. Don't take things so literally that this becomes some kind of martial heading off to war. But in terms of fighting the powers of darkness in high places. Yes, put on the whole armor of God and get ready for the fight of your lives. It's one that will win, as long Mm -hmm. as we stay on the Lord's side. But that's the choice before us. So he says in verse 12 and 13, Let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about this will be the valley of judgment. For the righteous, it will be the valley of blessing. For the wicked, not so much. What will he do there? Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full, the fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. This is the field is white, already to harvest. This is the wine vat is red, already to be trodden. This is he hath trampled out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. This is the Lord coming in robes of reminding red, having trodden the winepress alone and staining all of his raiment. This is the second coming, and he's coming to the valley of Jehoshaphat. He rephrases it in verse 14 with, with one of the most To me, one of the most powerful symbols you could ask for in Scripture. Because in light of all this talk of valleys, the valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of judgment, the valley of blessing, in verse 14, he renames it one last time. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. You see what he's done by by re-christening it? This is the choice that the last days will set before you. It's a great and dreadful day. Which do you prefer? It is no more middle ground. It is choose you this day because it's the last day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This is Elijah against the priests of Baal, wondering how long halt ye between two opinions. If the Lord be God, then follow him. But if Baal follow him, this is choose a side and dive in the trenches because the bullets are flying and middle ground is no man's land. We have to make up our mind in the valley of decision. And so here we stand, multitudes, multitudes, making the decision of a lifetime, a decision of the eternities. The rest of this chapter builds off of that with more signs of the times, but this is the time, the time to choose. He says in 15 and 16, the sun and the moon shall be darkened and the stars shall withdraw their shining. This is a day of darkness and we have to be the light. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion. How's that for the lion of the tribe of Judah? He will utter his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. This is the Lord seeing us through the shaking of the last days. This is him steadying us and helping us stay on our feet. In 17 and 18, So shall ye know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. I'm right here with you. Then shall Jerusalem be holy. And there shall no strangers pass through her any more, No more strangers or foreigners, only fellow citizens with the saints. It shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop down new wine. The hills shall flow with milk and all the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters and a fountain shall come forth out of the house of the Lord and shall water the valley of Shittim. This is the river of living water that Ezekiel saw that John prophesied of the river of living water that should come from every temple when the side of Jesus himself was pierced what came out of his temple not just blood but living water and for that to come forth as we come unto Christ as we come to know him in his holy dwelling In his mountain, flowing with milk and honey, flowing with wine and milk. Come and buy it without money and without price. Just come. That's the place of safety amidst all this destruction. It's the place of light amidst the darkness. And then the chapter ends. Verse 19 through 21. Egypt shall be a desolation. Edom, a desolate wilderness for the violence against the children of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. There's judgment being passed on Israel's enemies. But what about God's friends? What about his people? Judah shall dwell forever and Jerusalem from generation to generation. For I will cleanse their blood that I have not cleansed for the Lord dwelleth in Zion. And those are Joel's final words. So similar to Ezekiel's final words that speak of the the, the city, the new Jerusalem, getting a new name. Simply, the Lord is there. Here the Lord dwelleth in Zion. He lives here. He stays here. And the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. The millennium begins. Satan is bound a thousand years children grow up without sin unto salvation. The Lord himself wipes away every tear from every eye. You understand why I would be so eager for the second coming to come? Why I want to spend my days preparing the earth for that glorious day? That I'm so grateful every time a trumpet blast sounds from the holy mountain, A clarion call for us to change, for us to choose the Lord. Because here we are, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. What kind of choices will we make? That valley of decision is the valley of Jehoshaphat, it's the valley of judgment, it's the valley of blessing. But it's also a literal valley. And that's the Kidron Valley. The Valley of Jehoshaphat has long been associated with the Kidron Valley. And if you're not familiar with the Kidron Valley, look for it every time it's mentioned in the Old Testament, and you will see the place where righteous and reforming kings, like Josiah, like Hezekiah, like Jehoshaphat would take their the pagan idols that the people had set up and destroy them melt them down in the valley of Kidron a valley of decision a valley of judgment in the days of the Passover when countless lambs without blemish were slain on the temple mount the blood would be funneled off the Temple Mount and would flow down through the Kidron Valley turning the brook Kidron blood red as ultimately it empties down into the Dead Sea. On the Day of Atonement when you perform the scapegoat ritual and put Israel's sins on the head of an innocent animal and then lead it out of Israel where? through the Kidron Valley. Once it crosses the brook Kidron, it's heading out into the wilderness of sin. Now those are all Old Testament references to the Kidron Valley. Keep looking for it when you get to the New Testament. And what's the most important geographical feature in the Kidron Valley? It's the Garden of Gethsemane, where the scapegoat went, where the blood was channeled where the, Kidron, where the brook Kidron flowed a blood red. And a solitary figure went to tread the winepress alone. Where a king of Israel destroyed the idols of our apostasy. Where rivers of living water will flow and ultimately heal the Dead Sea. Multitudes, multitudes, where are we? We're in the Valley of Decision, and that's Gethsemane. And can you imagine how different your decisions would be if you made every single one of them, spiritually speaking, right there in the garden? Knowing what your Decisions would cost the man that paid the price for them there. When Moses set before them life and death and said, please choose life. When Joshua entered the promised land and in a valley of decision between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Had the tribes of Israel split so they could shout curses and blessings across the valley. So there as I sit or stand in the middle I have the choice before me and it is brutally clear. This is Abraham setting up his altar between Bethel on one side, the house of God and I on the other, the ruined world and with a decision to make, where will I go? That's the valley of Jehoshaphat. That's the valley of judgment. That's the valley where Christ made it possible for us to change. But that's the valley of decision and my prayer for all of us, myself included, is that with Joel's voice ringing in my ears, with the Spirit of God filling my heart, with young men having visions and old men dreaming dreams, and sons and daughters being filled with the Spirit of the Living God, I pray I will choose wisely. I bear my testimony that someday the Lord will come in robes of reminding red. That someday the final box of the prophecy of Job will be checked. And then we'll be checked to see how we've lived our lives. I am grateful for tender mercies. I am grateful for a Lord who never gives up on straying saints. But I invite all of us to come unto him to enter the valley and to look at the consequences on both sides and to choose, to choose wisely. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision.